Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for September 27th, 2022. Huge episode, tons of books. There's like 19 books. We're going to talk about 17 of them. Um, that being said, when you have that many books, there's bound to be some that Rocky and I just didn't care for. Not to say they're bad books, but they just didn't do it for us in particular. So there might be some of these where Rocky really doesn't have much to say, or I don't really have much to say, or maybe both of us don't really have much to say about either one of them. So um, that all being said, we got a lot of books, so we're going to dive right in, starting with Action Comics number 1047. This is Kal-El Returns, Chapter 1, Double Sun, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. The art is by Ricardo Federici. Colors by Lee Luffridge. Dave Stewart handles the letters. There's a... Regular cover by Steve Beach, and then a couple variants, Nathan Cesardi, Lucio Perillo, and then there's a Harley Quinn 30th anniversary by somebody named Larix, who I'm not really that familiar with. Um, and we've talked before about Ricardo Federici's interior art, how we're more used to seeing him on covers, but I really enjoyed his interior art when he was on the arc previously, less so on this one, and I'll talk about why in a second. There also was a backup called Red Moon. Part one, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson is the writer. David Lapham is the artist for that one with colors by Trish Mulvihill, Dave Sharp on letters. It's kind of continuing the same creative team that's get, been giving us a backup, but now we have a new backup. Um, basically, still kind of the same story. I'm, I'm almost surprised they started over, I guess, consider it like a new arc. Um, but it, it's still telling the same story of John and... Supergirl, uh, John Henry Irons and Supergirl and uh, Theo L and, and all that, uh, Theo Law rather, um, when she wakes up and, and all that kind of stuff. So we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but let me go back to the main story. Uh, I mentioned the art. Um, so previously when Ricardo Federici did the art, I felt like it really suited the story, right? It, they were on War World. It was this gladiatorial setting, you know, very dusty in the arena and it really evoked that feel of of battle now we're back on earth and the style that he uses i feel like it just doesn't quite suit the story that's being told as well because everything looks like it has a little bit of a like this mist over it like this filter where everything's not super sharp um and it, it just doesn't suit. It's, it's fine it, you're out in space it's it's this fantastical reality but when you're on earth i think it needs to look a little more realistic as opposed to having this filter on it. So while the storytelling is still top notch, I just didn't feel that. And the art is still great. I mean, he's a super talented artist. I just kind of question whether he's the right choice when we're back on earth. So that's just my own personal uh, kind of feel on it. As far as the story goes, it's interesting, right? Like actually in that backup story, we see the moment that Kal-El returns. To but Although they sort of make a big deal, oh, you're back. In the main story, there's been somewhat of a time jump. Kellel has been back long enough that he's back. He's explained to the world where he was. He's brought War World right to the doorstep of Earth. It's literally in orbit of the Earth, which I, I don't know. I just question the the uh, the validity of that. Like, why, why would Superman do that? He and. You know, there's a point in the story where the UN gets together and they're like, Superman, what, you know, you've brought these dangerous people. And he gives a speech about everybody deserves second chances and these people were kidnapped from their homes and all this sort of stuff. 
<laughs> and while that's all true, um, your dog really likes the story. I tell you what. Yeah, my, I'm sorry, my <laughs> wife is home. Uh, you know, what? why don't you talk? Why don't you talk, Rock? I put myself on mute. Go handle this. Sorry. Oh, no worries. It's all good. Uh, well, as uh, Chase was uh, saying, uh, Superman uh, addresses the United Nations because you got War World uh, because of having defeated Mongol on War World. War World now is uh, the the planetoid itself or the planet of War World is actually orbiting Earth, essentially, or is at least in, in Earth orbit. And there's a lot of there's some of the refugees, some of the Phaeolosians and some of the some of the people that were on War World. They, w- they would like to make Earth their home now. Interestingly enough, Superman is making a speech to the UN, essentially asking the world to accept some of the refugees uh, from War World, which uh, I think is very fascinating and very interesting because it's, uh, dare I say, this is Superman being a little bit more politically, internationally politically active. And it sort of touches on themes of, obviously, themes of immigration and, and to what extent you go to, you know, uh, put your money where your mouth is if you care about the downtrodden and the, and the enslaved. Uh, well, this is the chance for all of Earth to help them. And that's what Superman, uh, his speech is meant to inspire the people of Earth to sort of accept that, to, to accept the Phaeolosians that, uh, and some of the other peoples that were on War World. I find it very interesting that Superman is not making the same pleas to the United Planets. I would have thought he would have went there first, but maybe that's going to be their second stop. I don't know, but that's uh, one of my one of my little maybe criticisms of what Superman's way of thinking here, but uh, that's not a bad thing for the story because I'm kind of glad that Superman's taken a stand here because uh, maybe he's inspired a little bit, little bit by his son John Kent, who's a little bit more inclined to maybe push the envelope on in interfering and maybe being more uh, internationally politically active and not being afraid to rock the boat and even being, uh, you know, uh, engaging in civil uh, protest. But I thought that was, uh, I thought that was very interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I agree that the art was, was, was a little bit off to me. I, I thought maybe it was, didn't necessarily fit him coming back to earth, but it did fit it. I thought maybe when Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor upon hearing that Superman is, was basically bragging that Natasha Irons and Steel are going to be u- utilizing some of the technology that they have. Uh, uh, that they found on War World to create a global energy research institute in conjunction with Star Labs and and have that base in Metropolis. Lex Luthor is worried that it's going to interfere with one of his projects called Project Blackout. And so Lex Luthor uploads his neural consciousness into a, his power, his Lex suit and goes and he checks out. He checks out. Uh, War World finds a, essentially finds an orphan box or, a, or leftover ra- remains of an orphan box and he approaches uh, essentially John Corbin Metallo at the end to try to, uh, you know, he's obviously we can be prepared for a new kind of powered up Metallo. Uh, who we see at the beginning of the issue that's being uh, John Corbin is being visited Corbin Corbin is being visited by his sister uh, in 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 prison and uh, so we can expect to see Metallo in the in the in the future issues and uh, yeah so I, I really enjoyed the uh, I, I thought it was I thought it was a good story uh, and even the art was good but like you said the art was maybe a little bit uh, uh, maybe a little bit uh, different uh, but I, I'm sure that Uh, It's odd that we wanted consistency on the art and then uh, uh, Ricardo Federici left uh, before he could draw the finale of the War World saga. Now he's back at when Superman's on Earth. It seems a little bit odd. He should have focused his efforts on finishing the War World saga and then maybe had a different artist with Superman coming back to Earth. But maybe that's just the way the their schedules, they had to they had to work it out. But uh, uh, 
not now that you're back from dealing with your uh, your dog, uh, what are some of your other comments on the main story, Jace? Yeah, I mean, I agree. This is a monthly book, right? It's a monthly, but it's not it's not biweekly anymore. So I am sort of at a loss as to why we can't. Ever since Daniel Samper left, it's been there's been no consistency on the art. Federici will do an issue, then we'll get somebody else. Federici comes back, then we get somebody else, and we get somebody else, and maybe like give us at least a couple of issues of the same artist. I mean, yeah, I because I agree with you. Like when when Lex is on the Alien War World, yeah, Federici's art is really suited for that. For on Earth, no, it just it doesn't work for me. Um, but yeah, my criticism kind of right along the lines that that you were saying, like. I, it, it doesn't make sense to me that Superman would – like, I get it. He wants people to have a second chance. He himself, you know, his home was destroyed. He was an orphan. So, he's yes, he's going to have compassion for these refugees that are on Warworld. It doesn't mean he's going to bring Warworld and park it in orbit around Earth because <laughs> it is a dangerous place, right? Take him to the moon. Take – you know, like, no, he puts it in orbit. That – it just doesn't because reasons like, and I get it, you know, when the, he's giving the speech to the United Nations, he talks about giving these people another chance, a second chance. Some of them you might even think about it as a first chance because they were born into that kind of um, world of slavery and they've never had a, a shot at a normal life or freedom. So again, I get the compassion part of it, but if, if this war world is orbiting the moon or is on the, the dark side of the moon, does that mean it's really any further away for Superman to reach them? No, it doesn't. To him, it's the same difference. So I get why the United Nations would be like, why are you putting this in proximity? Plus, it's pretty big, right? War World's pretty big to be in orbit around the Earth. Yeah. Isn't that, that going to affect like the tides and weather and stuff like that? Like, it just, it doesn't seem necessary to me. It, it just doesn't seem necessary. It just seems like, I don't know if Philip Kenny Johnson didn't think about that or if he's just doing it because at some point it's going to cause a problem and he's trying to create drama or wait, it just, for, to me, it just doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. like Superman is not a dumb person. Why take the extra risk? So it's I, it just, it jumped out at me. It, it, I didn't care for it. Um, I found one of the most scathing comments against Superman in the issue was with by Lex Luthor. When Lex Luthor goes and, and, and looks at what's left remains of War World, he says, everywhere Superman goes, the sheep trample each other for the chance to nuzzle his hand. This would be Earth by now, if not for me, as if suggesting that if it wasn't for him, Earth would have ended up, would end up like War World with a bunch of enslaved people worshiping Superman as their savior. I mean, that's how, that's how Lex Luthor views the whole War World saga, essentially. So I, I thought that was a sort of a good, sort of a harsh take taken by Lex Luthor through uh, PKJ's writing. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of interesting, right? Like Superman's my favorite character and I want, I want him to. I don't want him to do dumb things. Like, it's hard to be like, yeah, Superman, he's the best. When he does dumb stuff, like, like you know, in the hands of certain writers, he's doing stuff that it's just inexplicably illogical. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I, I can't defend Superman bringing War World and putting it in orbit. It's just a bad, like, what good can come of that? Again, put it over by the moon. Put it in orbit around the moon or just put it on the far side of the moon. To Superman, that's a what is that like a matter of seconds in terms of distance <laughs> if he has to fly there? Yeah. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a little baffling. I, I get maybe if I'm really trying to stretch it. Okay. Well, if it's in orbit, it allows other heroes to maybe get there. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. And then in the backup story, like I said, we see the moment where 
uh, where Superman returns. I, and I guess it's supposed to land with some level of emotion. It kind of doesn't. I mean, there's, it's just sort of, okay, this happened. Um, so I, I, I don't know, maybe it land would land better for some, some others, but other than the Superman coming back in the backup and Theola, uh, waking up, the only other thing of consequence is some of the, um, the soldiers of the Mongol that that was, I suppose you'd say, uh, are are on Earth to get their vengeance against their greatest enemy, the unblooded sword, the one you call Superman. So I, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, if Warworld hadn't been so close, they might not have been able to transport to Earth. It does look like they transport with some sort of – it's not a mother box, but definitely some kind of technology. I think it might be an orphan box or uh, – that's I called it an yeah. orphan box because they took it out of the – but but that might be wrong too. Maybe I'm wrong about. Yeah, that. it doesn't look like what an orphan box looked like. But is, yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Maybe David Lapham didn't know what an orphan box looked like, and he just <laughs> I, I, again, I don't know exactly where these people are coming from. Mongols forces, um, but if they did come from Warworld, you know, that's just another you know strike against Superman. Why did you put Warworld so close? So, I mean, if Superman is back on Earth and he has his full complement of powers. I don't really see that these guys should be much of a challenge for him, but I'm sure that PKJ will manipulate it in such a way that there'll be a big challenge for Superman. I'm just over it. If you can't tell, I'm just, I'm so over this war world stuff. Um, and I thought, okay, he's going to come back and we'll be done with the war world stuff. But apparently that's, that's not the case. And I, I'm just yeah. so over it. Um, you know, you know, my biggest fear my biggest fear, and and I and I I fear it's coming to coming to reality, is I, I actually I'm I want to give some pushback. I, I don't like the idea of Superman's family expanding so much. I, I you know it's like they're handing out Kryptonian superpowers under the guise of Philogian powers and all that. You know it just seems like we're we're just going to be get we're just going to be getting. I, I think Superman yeah, loses some sort sort of his special specialness by having just too many aliens with Superman like powers. I mean, I get it. You want to create more story potential and narrative, uh, you know, inroads and what have you. I just kind of, I, I kind of push back from that, and I'm not a, necessarily a big fan of, you know, I don't want Phaeolosians and I don't want all the Kandorians released and living on Earth and all the Phaeolosians and everything else. I just sort of like, in fact, even. I remember uh, Jeff Johns tried that with the uh, with with Krypton Return storyline, and, and no one liked yep. it. In the end, did it all, and I fear that this is it has some it has similar overtones with the undertones with that, and I I just want to pull back from that. Yeah, but, I'm, I, what you know what I would like? I'd like some Superman stories. That's what I would I would like some <laughs> stories about Superman. Not all this War World and all these other got the the cast of characters that PKJ has created is huge. It's huge. Mm -hmm. I would like and, – and I thought, okay, well, he's coming back to Earth. You know, We'll get the reunion between him and Lois. We did get that in that special. It lasted for a page. How about a conversation <laughs> with John Kent? How about a conversation with Lois? How about a, you know, a story focused on Clark and his family? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just over it. I'm so over the War World stuff. And I thought when he came back to Earth, it would be the end of it. But apparently that's not to be, so – uh, it's yeah. Enough said. Let's let's move on. Uh, up next, we have DC Horror presents Sergeant Rock versus the Army of the Dead number one. I don't know why I thought this was a one shot in my mind all along. I was thinking it was a one shot even when I was at San Diego Comic Con and Bruce Campbell crashed the panel t 
to talk about this book. I still thought it was a one shot. It's not. It's a six issue mini <laughs> written by the aforementioned Bruce Campbell. Yeah, the guy that played Ash in Evil Dead. Uh, the art is by Eduardo Riso. Colors are by Christian Rossi and letters by Rob Lee. What do you think of this? I uh, I liked it. I I'm a I'm a Sergeant Rock fan. I've I've loved Sergeant Rock my uh, my whole life. Unfortunately, I there's not a lot to there's not a lot of uh, modern day Sergeant Rock to collect. The last time I saw Sergeant Rock was in uh, Death Metal, and and Scott Snyder had him basically beat. Ironically, the last time I saw Sergeant Rock, Sergeant Rock was a zombie himself almost. He was sort of, you know, they had flashbacks of Sergeant Rock sort of breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader about, you know, fighting for freedom and fighting for what's right and all that other jazz. But in any event, it's nice to see Sergeant Rock. It's very rare to see Sergeant Rock not driven, not drawn by Joe Kubert, uh, Joe Kubert, uh, who unfortunately, of course, he, he left us a number of years ago. But, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see this, uh, here, uh, Bruce Campbell. Uh, Bruce Campbell is the writer here. Of course, Bruce Campbell is the the actor who uh, who portrayed. who was in the I think the Army of the Dead or uh, that that sort of classic yeah, horror Evil Dead. Evil Dead, yeah, <laughs> that B movie. And uh, in any event, I, I like this. This is uh, this is a little tropey, uh, which uh, this actually this didn't surprise me at all. This was exactly the type of plot line that I expected. It was basically zombies in World War II fighting the allied soldiers. And I, you know, I bet you if, if I bet you, I almost could have written this just going in cold and imagining what the plot was. <laughs> this exact, I, I would have guessed, right. This is just the, at the end of World War II or near the end of World War II, the not the uh, Germans are losing. And it looks like Hitler himself is maybe possessed or is a zombie himself. Uh, Hitler in his bunker is ripping off the rips off the heads of one of his generals, and they he puts together. Uh, you know, he's looking. He, he's asked about the status of his regeneration plan, and then the German, the Nazis, have figured out how to regenerate human tissue uh, and electrifying the brain in order to and uh, to basically empower and to raise the dead. So even though their armies have been wiped out, they've all but lost the war. Well, they're not going to lose the war if they can raise all their dead because lord knows the allies killed a shitload of germans and so raise their dead and then they can basically redo the war with an army of dead and of course uh they call in sergeant rock of easy company uh with a level nine secret mission as they call it and him and easy company uh sergeant rock if you read all those classic dc comics uh, with Sergeant Rock in it. Sergeant Rock and Easy, Easy Company, they were always the ones you call if you have a mission that is, is a little bit wackier, out of sorts, or it's an impossible a suicide mission. You either call the losers, uh, or you bring in Easy Company. And, uh, it's, so it was nice to, uh, it's, it's nice to see that. Uh, I really love the art here by Edward Rizzo. I, I thought uh, he's actually perfect for it. I, uh, last time I, in fact, I just read, uh, uh, 100 Bullets again, the last, uh, I bought the last heart, the fifth volume of heart, uh, 100 bullets. I love Edward Rizzo's art. It's not for every kind of story, but for this kind of story, I really like his style of art because it, um, it's, it's just, it's, it's really, it's, it's fitting for a zombie tale. And I think it, it just, it just sort of suits the sort of darker tone and the eerie, horrific kind of tone Edward Rizzo is, is just very good at. And, you know, it's funny. I'm so used to seeing Sergeant Rock drawn as uh, by uh, by by Kubert that I'm I'm actually uh, pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoy seeing him drawn 
by a different artist, Edward Rizzo. And, you know, uh, it's fun. If you like zombies and if you like, if you like war stories and you like, and you love Sergeant Rock, this is definitely something you'd want to pick up. What do you think? I thought it was okay. Uh, I enjoy kind of the, the fun of it, how, how ludicrous the idea is. Um, yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of Eduardo Rizzo's art. Um, that being said, like you mentioned, it, it does suit this type of story. I've never read a hundred bullets. So, you know, it might be that his art is an acquired taste and I'll get used to it, you know, by the second or third issue and think, Oh, this is exactly the way the art should be. Uh, for me, it's just uh, an unfamiliar unfamiliarity with the style. Um, so we'll see, we'll set that aside. Cause he does, he's a fantastic storyteller. Um, and technically his art's really strong. It's just, I, I don't particularly care for the style. As far as the story goes, um, yeah, it's just, it feels like it's a lot of fun. I'm a Sergeant Rock fan as well. It's great to see Easy Company. I think that um, Bruce Campbell is a fantastic writer and understands that he's a comic book fan and he understands Sergeant Rock uh, and will get some good characterization. The only thing that I'll kind of nitpick Bruce for, and again, this is a super nitpick, this is 1940s, right? World War II, yeah. Easy Company over in Europe, whatever. There's several people that use the word zombie in the story. Yeah. Zombie was a word that originated from the movie Night of the Living Dead, that infamous, I think it was 1969 movie from George Romero. Uh -huh. That movie created zombies, like in terms of, like now everybody thinks of zombie in the same way they think of a, a werewolf or is a that where the word originated or... from zombie it originated yeah, yeah. With that movie yeah it that word did not exist in 1945 <laughs> the concept of a zombie yeah. did not really exist i mean yes they had undead or unliving if you want to look at jewish folklore they had the idea of a golem which was an unliving and sometimes they used usually it was clay but sometimes they used um body parts of undead people yeah. Frankenstein's monster. Certainly you could think of him in a way as a zombie because he's put together from dead body parts. Yeah. But yeah, there's no, there's no term zombie <laughs> until the 1970s. So he also plays up, with the technology too. Like he, he gives yeah. more technology here. Walkie talkies, night vision goggles, thermal yeah, vision. Night vision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is fun, which is great. I mean that I, I did, I, I have, that didn't pull me out of the story as much. I did notice it. I was like, Oh, night vision goggles, huh? Cause you can think, well, the government had it way back then. <laughs> But just yeah. for random, you know, everyday citizens to be using the term zombie, it just, I was like, well, that word did not exist back then. So, uh, but again, it, it's a minor nitpick. The story's a lot of fun, some cool covers. So uh, let's move on. Up next, we have Deathstroke Incorporated, number 13. Uh, again, I'll just throw out, why is this thing continue to be called Deathstroke Incorporated? didn't understand why it was called Deathstroke Incorporated when it started because it was Deathstroke and Black Canary. And then we got to the point where Slade Wilson is the head of the Secret Society of Supervillains. So then it kind of made sense. Now we're doing a year one story. <laughs> this, this title should not be called Deathstroke Incorporated and probably never should have been called Deathstroke Incorporated. But setting that aside, uh, written by Ed Brisson, art is by Dexter Soy, colors by Veronica Gandini, letters by Steve Wands. As I said, it's year one, part four. Uh, speaking of zombies, Slade wakes up in the morgue after jumping off a building to escape <laughs> uh, from the, the federal agents that had captured him uh, or had detained him, however you want to put it, at no, the end of last issue. 
Yeah, and Green Arrow. Um, and so it's great to see him kind of discovering his healing factor. Uh, the characterization of Slade by uh, Ed Brisson, I think, is is still dead on. He, he's such a complex character, and we've seen that. And even with what's going on right now in um, Dark Crisis, you kind of see he's he's possessed, but he's trying to push back on that. I mean, he, he does have a morality. He does have a code. Um and you see that portrayed here, you know, he at one point he even says, you know, my word, I gave my word, my word is my bond. He's not giving up on his, his contract, but you can see the inconsistencies in it, right? Like he's somewhat of a hypocrite. He's broken. We know part of that has to do with the serum that's inside of him that stimulated certain parts of the brain. The guy craves violence. He doesn't feel like his life is complete without it. But when he talks about the fact that, uh, he, he gave his word and he's going to complete the contract. There's a point in the book where his wife has been calling and calling and calling, can't get a hold of him. Uh, and eventually he calls her and she says, Hey, I'm pregnant. We're going to have another kid. And he hangs up and, and smashes the phone because he knows he's not a good father. Last thing he needs is another kid to take care of. But I keep going back to him saying, you know, my, my word is my bond. You got married to this woman. And you made promises. So how come your word is your bond for this contract when you agree to kill the doctor that made you what you are, but yet your word is not your bond when you gave your word and your marriage vows? Like, dude, you're a hypocrite. You're a scumbag. Um, and he's a bad guy. So, you know, we should get that kind of character. We should feel that. And it works. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it works. Right? I mean, th this is this is the inherent um, brokenness, uh, with Slade. This is why he's a bad guy, you know, or anti-hero, whatever label you want to put on it. Um, he, you know, he, he says, my word is my bond. I'm going to go complete this contract. It's his, that's his excuse. That's his uh, rationalization, right? For him wanting to do what he wants to do. And, and he can put aside the vows or the words that he gave. The word is my bond when it comes to my marriage vows. Cause I don't really want to do that. I'm not good at that. I never should have got married. I never should have had kids. Like th this is just kind of reinforcing. So going back to what you said when we started reviewing this from the beginning, do, do we really need this? Because um, we are learning. We're, we're getting a deeper level of understanding in in who Slate is. But at the same time, this isn't anything that's like groundbreaking or new in terms of knowing Slade's a bad father. You know, knowing that he's kind of narcissistic. He's kind of self centered um, and you know, he's going to do what he wants to do. And if that means that other people get hurt, well, that's just too bad. Um, so it's kind of interesting reading this uh, because I, I did recently, uh, I say recently in the last six months, or let's say reread the entirety of the, um, the Christopher priest Deathstroke run where he did sort of mellow out toward the end of that run. Um, but this is reminding us that, yeah, he's, he never stays mellow for long. And then certainly when Deathstroke Incorporated started and he decided he was going to take over the secret society of supervillains, there's there's definitely no mellow in his game this, these days. So I am enjoying this. Um, I, I think for somebody who's a huge Deathstroke fan and knows him really, really well, you're probably getting a little bit less out of it than somebody who doesn't uh, know Slade or hasn't been familiar with him uh, and, and those tendencies, those um, kind of character flaws, if you will. Uh, the Dexter, Dexter Soy art is solid. He's really good at drawing action. Get some great splash pages and whatnot. Um, and the McKellianine covers 
uh, are gorgeous as well. So, uh, what do you think of this one, Rock? I, I liked it, and for the, uh, and for many of the reasons that you sort of touched upon, uh, Slade comes back from the from from he comes back to life. His I guess he was never really dead. His healing factor did in fact save his life, and ironically enough, he wants to come back. To, he comes back to life. His healing factor saves him, and he wants to he wants to fulfill his mission and kill the very doctor that gave him the ability, his body, the ability to heal itself, so he can come back to life and kill the doctor. So uh, sort of a tragic, uh, ironic circle there. But he comes back to life, and you know it's it's there was actually a pretty good scene. He comes back to life. He gets his armor back from he he almost kills two cops runs him off the road to get his armor back so he doesn't care about officers lives he threatens them he wants to he wants to go and he finish his contract he ends up meeting up with wintergreen and and I, and I thought wintergreen touched upon something wintergreen was going to try to finish the contract for slade wintergreen seems to care more about his uh, slade's wife and kids than than slade does it's wintergreen who forces all but forces slade to talk call your call addy call your wife talk to addy uh, uh and you know your son Grant, I mean, call him for God's sakes. But he he just he does he can't really bring himself to do it. But he does only to find out that uh, she, Addie's pregnant again with her second child. That readers will know will be uh, Rose. I guess I'm assuming. Uh, but in any event, it's uh, it's really kind of sad that you know this. Uh, I view Slade. I read this as even being more tragic than what you alluded to because I see it as a fact of you know Slade. Only has is only in control of one thing in his life, and when you're out of control, if you don't know how to handle your marriage, you don't know how to handle your relationship, you don't know how to be a parent. If you're a parent, you don't know how to be a dad, and you and you don't even try, and you don't even try to be a good husband, you don't even put the effort in, and the only thing you're good at is what you do at your job. When when, when you're losing control of your life, you tend to grab and you try to you try to grab onto those things that you are in control of and that you are good at, and. And by doing so, you get better at your job, but guess what? Your relationships go to shit because, you know, what you focus on is what's going to grow. And, and of course, with here with Slade, he's focusing on, on the one thing that will make him the best in the world, but he, he comes at a se- severe cost and that is his family. So I think Ed Brisson here, you know, uh, you know, we, we posed a question earlier when this, when this origin began. We said, what, who asked for this story? Well, you know, maybe it's this story is a good reminder as to exactly why Slade is the type of person that he is and why you know why he's the man that he is flaws and all and why in particular he can be a real jerk an asshole a killer a murderer a bad guy and occasionally on his best day we're lucky if he becomes an anti-hero and uh, we should also know remind people that in dark crisis you know slade was a pretty good candidate for infection by the by the great darkness and that's exactly what happened so in any event i'm i'm actually uh kudos to ed brison i'm actually uh really enjoying this and and i i want to give a shout out to ed brison he not only writes this but he also writes another independent comic that uh, i've really been enjoying on another podcast and i know you've been enjoying it too uh jace you've been reviewing it yourself uh something uh something wrong with patrick todd which is an app i think it's an aftershock comic but it's it's pretty yep. good as well yeah i'm a huge fan of ed i read everything that he writes because he's uh he's fantastic and uh, he's got a, a previous he had a previous aftershock title called beyond the breach that we covered on new comics wednesdays uh that's coming back at some point as well so uh yeah i'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of what he does uh and you're right <laughs> you mentioned you know uh addy being pregnant again and the second child and you're right to say that you know, Rose, the, the second. So that we had Grant and then Rose and then Joseph, Joseph yeah. or Jericho. Um, and that's another thing that's so interesting to me, right? Like he clearly does not want to be a father. And when he finds <laughs> out that he's going to be a dad for the second time, he freaks out and punches the payphone and breaks it. 
you would think at that point, no more kids, like either stop having sex with her, wear some kind of protection. She needs to go on the pill, get snipped. Like there's any <laughs> number of ways to prevent pregnancy. He, she, he gets her pregnant again. That's the thing. He freaks out over the second one that he's going to do it again at some point. Like, you know, Joseph comes along. Yeah. The guys. Yeah. He's make better choices, Slade. That's all I got to say, man. Make better choices. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Detective Comics number 1064, Gotham Nocturne Overture Part 3. It's written by Rom V. Raphael Albuquerque handles the art. Dave Stewart on colors. Ariana Mare does the letters. And then we uh, have the backup starring Jim Gordon, which is written by Cy Spurrier. The art in this is by Danny. Dave Stewart does the colors on this and Steve Wands on, on letters. So uh, what do you think of the main story? Uh, the, the main story, I, I I thought it was interesting. You know, Ram V is uh, Ram V loves a good. He, he really loves delving into mythology. You know, I, I think he, he channeled his inner swamp thing here. He, he loves telling stories, and uh, he he always likes to tell stories within stories, and he does that with great effect here in this issue of Detective Comics. In this, it's called Gotham Nocturne Overture Part Three, and it starts off with Talia training a young Damien. This is clearly a flashback to an earlier time, and she's telling her son Damien about the story of Farhad, who is the story of Farhad, or the story of the Grim Soldier. And what is the Grim Soldier? Well, the Grim Soldier is somebody who, as the story goes, as she tells Damien, is he's someone that had a great love, but he was also a great warrior, and he he became so popular and so so powerful, and he, yet he was just human. Uh, but he he became so powerful that he the gods became envious of Farhad, and they have and they they gave Farhad an impossible task that he that he couldn't that no nobody could possibly accomplish. And so Farhad went. He took up the challenge. He left the love of his life. Uh, this uh, he left the love of his life, and he went and he actually achieved the impossible. He defeated. Uh, he accomplished the the Herculean task, and. But uh, when he returned to his the love of his life, she ended up being dead because the gods played a trick on him and time passed differently and his wife dies. His love of his life dies and he, he turns, he essentially turns to granite because he refuses to move until such time as the gods are gone, until there are no more gods. And that's his resentment of the gods. And, and it's kind of interesting because this, you know, what the hell does this have to do with the detective comic story that Ram V started off t- telling? Well, it ends up that ta- the grim, Sort of the grim soldier is how Talia views Bruce Wayne and that, that she even refers to uh, Bruce Wayne as the grim soldier because what's happening is that we have this um, um, – the Prince Arzan Orgum who uh, – and his, and his mother, Queen Daria Orgum, they're coming to they're, – they're coming to Gotham City because they've got, they've got uh, a connection. They got historic ties to Gotham's oldest landmarks including Arkham Asylum. And so they, they, I think they're they, they're going to be utilizing some of those old historical legal ties in order to come back and take over. I think be the new mafia family of Gotham City, or at least try to exert some influence. And uh, in order to do that, uh, they uh, they they have some something's now. Something's going on, and Talia expects the worst from this 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 Orgham family, and she's got the League of Assassins set up to essentially take them down. Uh, but uh, uh, Prince Prince Orgham and Queen Orgham they 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 expect an attack, and Talia Talia is for whatever reason trying to protect 
Bruce Wayne. She's trying to protect Batman and she intentionally, uh, she intentionally distracts Batman and they end up in battle and she, and Batman knows that Talia is just trying to distract him and he figures out that she's just trying to keep Batman away from the Gotham Harbor. And what's coming, what's happening at Gotham Harbor is that Prince Arzan Orgham is, is coming into uh, the city and something bad is going to happen. So clearly Talia knows something's bad is going to happen. And that, and what that is, is that Talia and her League of Assassins are planning to take out Prince Orgham. But Prince Orgham is aware of what Talia is going to do. And what exactly, what exactly the motive of, of the Orgham family is, we're not sure, but we know that they have some kind of like supernatural powers, perhaps some connection to the past. Talia refers to Batman as her grim knight, almost suggesting that he's someone who fights against impossible odds. Uh, you know, he's the, uh, as the, uh, as the grim soldier, sorry, not the grim knight. That's a different character, but as a, she thinks of, uh, Bruce as her grim soldier, meaning that, you know, she's his love and that they're, 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 they're almost like they're doomed. Like Talia will, will, will die long before he, he can, they can ever be a true couple. So I think that there's a lot of symbolism there. And I think it's an interesting, some interesting uh, symbols going on there and some metaphors in the story. And, you know, Ram V to good effect, he's building up the suspense uh, because it ends with the arrival at Gotham Harbor of Queen Arg Argham uh, and, um, Orgham and Prince Orgham and exactly what they're doing to Gotham, exactly how they're going to manipulate events with Arkham Asylum and how to gain more power in the city. That's yet to be revealed. But I like where this is going. I like that Ram V is maybe playing a little bit with the relationship between Talia and Bruce Wayne and some and the, and the past and the, the the rich history and and subtext that that always seems to underscore Gotham and the history of Arkham Asylum and the history of all these new 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 rogues rogues that always come along. So, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think I'm enjoying this as much as you. Um, I think it's for a couple of reasons. Like you, you mentioned, the rich history of Gotham and the Arkham family, and that's sort of why. I think it, this isn't resonating with me. It's like, this doesn't, we've, we've been down this road before, right? Like, Oh, here's a new heretofore undiscovered history of Gotham, right? Like when the court of owls was discovered, it's like at, at some point where all these people come and claim to own Gotham or have roots in Gotham or be a founding father or whatever, wouldn't Deb Donovan or somebody at the Gotham Gazette or some reporter do a comprehensive history of Gotham so and, and learn everything so we don't every few years have these surprises of these new people that show up. Oh, we're actually the owners of Gotham. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's just a little ri ridiculous. I get it. it. You're trying to tell new stories and, and what have you. So, But again, it just it doesn't feel new. What does feel different about this time that we're going and exploring is kind of the mood and the feel that Ram V is in, infusing into this. I mean, the name of the story, the name of his, his era of detective comics, I guess we'll say is Nocturne, you know, Nocturne in terms of, if you want to talk about music and opera, you know, a, a dirge, something really heavy music and kind of somber and, and what have you. Um, and so the feel of the story that's being told is very morose in my mind. The art, the way it's colored, everything is sort of real heavy and dark and everything has consequence. 
And I'm not saying that you can't tell a Batman story like that. And I certainly don't think you can, it's much harder to make a Batman story lighthearted and make it, you know, make sense and feel like a Batman story. There was a time when you could do that and everything didn't have to feel real heavy and mysterious and somber and serious, but the Dark Knight Returns happened and it, it, you know, influenced a whole generation of creators and Batman is what he is now, you know, dark and gritty for better or worse. Um, But there's dark and gritty and then there's taking it to the next level, which Rom V has done here, giving us the best word I can use to describe it is just a very morose story. Um, and I'm, I'm not that interested in reading a super depressing, morose story of Batman. Batman's kind of depressing and serious enough as it is just because of the era of Batman that we're in that I just talked about. So then you want to add in these kind of gothic themes and these operatic themes and, and bring in all this heavy color and shadow. And, and it just, that's great. That's, you know, hey, if I ever get a chance to write a Batman story, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tie it in with my knowledge of opera and make it super gothic and, and all this kind of stuff. That's great if that's what Ron V wants to do. It's just not just not for me, not what I enjoy reading. On top of that, the last thing that, that I haven't been enjoying, I feel like we've hardly gotten any Batman in this story. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean we do get a little bit of Bruce Wayne in this issue and – I certainly applaud Ron V for that because we get not enough Bruce Wayne these days. He's always under the cowl. But when we get Bruce Wayne in this particular issue, he's doing Batman stuff as Bruce Wayne, and that makes no sense. It makes no sense that he would not put on the costume to go interrogate this guy. Why would he just put on a mask and risk somebody recognizing him? It, well, I think he was at the, he was at the hospital getting a medical checkup, and at the yeah, same I get time, that. the, the I other get guy that. was in the same hospital, so I don't think he had yeah, his bat I, suit with him. So, <laughs> doesn't oh, oh, Batman doesn't have his bat suit with him. Batman's not prepared. It's it's ludicrous. It's the height of stupidity. It just it makes zero sense. So again, I applaud. Hey, let's get more Bruce Wayne. That's great. Um, we've hardly had any Bruce Wayne in the story. I don't even know who Bruce or Batman is in terms of characterization in the hands of Ron V. And maybe he's not any different than, you know, what we expect from Batman. But yeah, to sit there and say, oh, he didn't have his costume with, I mean, come on, man. Well, maybe the you doctor, know? the doctor gave him a thorough checkup. Maybe he got a little violated there. You know, it didn't. Right. Okay. Go down to your costume on. Go to one of your mini bat caves because you have one around every corner in Gotham. Yeah. It just, it, it, I, I couldn't take it seriously at all that he would put, put – I mean, if you're going to do it, you're going to put on some completely useless sock over your head or whatever it was that he put on. Then nobody's going to recognize you as Bruce Wayne. Come on, man. I mean, it's hard it, It's hard enough for us to, to buy the fact that when people can see half of his face and he's a famous billionaire celebrity that people don't recognize Batman and Bruce Wayne are one and the same. Now you put on this sock with giant eye holes that all it does is cover your hair and people aren't going to recognize you as Bruce Wayne. I mean, it, it, it was just, I was cringing the entire time during that scene. So yeah, I, again, I, this just isn't for me. It's not working for me for those reasons I gave. Um, yeah, it's a little disappointing. I've got, I've got action comics. I've got detective comics of which I have, you know, long, long, long runs. In, in the hundreds, I think for, for 
um, for action, I think I have, you know, of the whatever 1,050 issues, I have over 800 of them. So not that I'll ever get those early issues because they're too expensive, but detective less. So I'm, I'm like from 300 up, I'm pretty good, but three to 400, I'm still working on from 400 up. I, I pretty much have everything. Yeah. So I say that to say, I'm not going to stop buying these because <laughs> like, and that's on me. I'm supporting this, even though I don't really enjoy it because uh, yeah. I don't want to break up my runs, but man, to, to have neither one of them really be that enjoyable for me is a little, little frustrating. That's too bad. I'm, I'm hoping it's going to pick up. I think that, I think uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I was, uh, I'm prepared to give him some slack because I think that uh, I'm really intrigued by this Prince Orgum. And I, I, I guess, no, I, yeah, yeah, I am too. There are aspects of the story that I'm curious about. Um, but again, I, I don't think, and, and that will pick up and, it, you know, as the, the mystery is revealed, it'll become, I think, more compelling. But one thing that I don't think is going to change is the tone. I think this is always going to be a very somber, morose story, and it's just well, not. It's funny. Speaking of tone, uh, you can talk about the backup because I, for the life of me, I have no idea what's going on with this backup. Written by Cy uh, Spurrier and and art by Danny, I'm 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 completely lost reading it, and I and it's the uh, part three, yeah. yeah. So you're not the only one <laughs> that's lost. I mean, we understand that Jim Gordon is going to be a private investigator now, and there's some power that's not explained that is possessing people. Um, and this is part three of three, and we're told that you know it's the end of the story, but we we didn't really get any answers. Uh, felt like it was just getting started. I was surprised to see it end. Um, so yeah, clearly there's something going on. It's, and it's, it could eventually tie into the Oregon story, the Arkham story, because, you know, clearly they're going around buying up real estate and burning it. Um, which is sort of interesting because it, it ties, it ties into some other Batman stories that we've read recently. Um, but w- we don't know why exactly. We don't know who, who's behind this, why they're not only burning buildings, but trying to burn the, the homeless people that are, um, kind of uh, shacking up there, if you will, squatting. Um, so Gordon's able to defeat this uh, former police officer or, or current police officer, really former partner uh, or somebody that works for Gordon when he was commissioner. Um, Gordon realizes that this guy is uh, possessed with, with these powers. Um, and the, the boy that Gordon rescued, who seems to be more than meets the eye as well and have these supernatural powers, he's able to save Gordon from this cop. And then the cop just kind of, keels over and dies um, and we don't know why or who you know who who's behind it basically it's almost like okay the story's just getting started and we know nothing and now it's over I, all, all we know is Gordon is going to keep investigating along with the help of this this kid that he's calls JJ um, even though, and I assumed JJ because he was seen as him as somewhat of a son. It felt like a slip of the tongue, you know, James Jr. And even the kid's like, JJ, that's not my name. Uh, and he's like, oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to go do some investigating at the harbor. Come with me, stay here. It's up to you. And he leaves. And that's the, basically the end of the story. Um, and, and yeah, I, again, I, I, part three of three, it, it doesn't, I was surprised to see it end like this. Well, we didn't I get was, any answers. Yeah, I, I was completely I was completely lost, and I I have to say like Cy Spurrier, maybe maybe he just got uh, maybe he just got too he was writing 
he ran out of room, but this was just so exposition heavy. Rather than Jim Gordon, he tries he tries way too hard to try to make Jim Gordon sound like for some sound like a 1940s detective. Stop that. Just if you know, I, I read this and I actually got a little frustrated because I said to myself, no wonder Batman makes Jim Gordon look like an idiot half the time. Is this how Jim Gordon thinks in his head all the time? It's like, you know, we get it. Like, just tell us what's going on. Like, connect the dots in your head at some point because I don't know what's going on. At no point was there a summary. Like, I, I didn't – this JJ kid has, seems to have powers. All of a sudden, this cop seemed to have powers. This felt completely out of the blue to me. And maybe it wasn't, but I – it certainly did. Artistically, I got to say, this was just a huge miss for me. I, I needed something art- artistically. I, I, you know, the, with the, the, the layout, the, the pacing, everything just was off to me. And then it, and then it ends abruptly. I still don't have a clue what's going on. I don't know if this is a setup for anything. And I guarantee you that if this does lead into anything, Whoever the new writer is bring, carrying up on this, whatever this plot line was, they're going to have to start from scratch to explain it to readers anyway. This has been an absolute waste. And, uh, you know, maybe that's me being harsh. I'm being as harsh on this, maybe as, maybe not quite as harsh as you were on Ram, on, on Ram V's main story, but what a disappointment this is. Uh, I mean, Cy if you don't have enough room to tell your story, don't tell it. <laughs> or tell a different story. I mean, because Cy Spurrier, I don't mind him as a writer. I've, I've really enjoyed some of his stuff. I, I, I quite enjoyed his Hellblazer. But this one was a major miss for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as as confusing as you're making it sound. Um, I think maybe the issue is you're trying to read more into it than, than is there. The fact of the matter is there's not much to this story. So I don't really think it's that confusing. Um, it's just that there not much happens, right? Like, Gordon agrees to investigate this missing kid. He, we find out that it was a setup from this cop, like this, this former cop, uh, or, or, you know, the cop in the story that has powers in this third issue is at a bar. Gordon's there. He introduces Gordon to this woman whose kid is missing. Uh, and it's all a setup because when Gordon goes to the, the site where the kid was last seen, he finds this kid, the kid with the powers, who he assumes to be the kid that he's looking for. Um, is there like on the verge of life and death, but then come to find out this cop who is possessed by whatever is working for someone we know not who and was doing it all to kill Gordon. Gordon escapes along with the kid. And then in the next issue, Gordon's trying to, in part two, Gordon's trying to figure out why this guy did what he did. He talks to the kid. The kid doesn't even speak in kind of sentences and grammar that makes sense. It's clear that the kid has some kind of powers. Gordon trails the cop, finds out he's doing this to a bunch of other people. He's locking them in to abandon real estate and then setting them on fire. And then we get this issue where Gordon confronts the cop, says, why are you doing this? The cop manifests some powers. Gordon's about to get his butt kicked, if not killed, when the kid shows up and saves Gordon. And Gordon kind of like, well, uh, there's a there's a clue that this guy was connected to something that's going on down at the docks at Gotham Harbor. I'm going to go investigate it. And he tells the kid, calls him JJ, slip of the tongue, James Jr. Kid's like, JJ, my name's not JJ. Says to the kid, come with me to investigate or not. And that's it. Like, that's not a confusing story. But we had 24 pages just to tell, just to do tell that. That's not much of anything. Um, And, 
And what was the purpose of it? Because we just get this hint that, hey, there's a lead. It's leading me to Gotham Harbor and the docks. I'm going to go investigate it. Okay, end of story. What what story starts with the first big clue about who's behind this? That's the end of the story? That's, that should happen in the beginning, right? The first couple pages, someone tries to kill Gordon. Gordon confronts him, gets a clue, goes to find out who's trying to kill him. That's the end of the story. That's what doesn't make sense to me, that that's the end of the story. And as far as the art goes, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of Danny's style of art when we were reading Arkham City New World Order, so I totally get it. Maybe with better art, this would make more sense. But again, I, yeah. I mean, not much happens in the story, and it ends in what feels like when the story is just getting started. Because I'm sure it makes sense to you the way that I just explained it. But again, why is there so much exposition? Why is there so much dialogue? Why are there so many dialogue boxes I, when the story, when you break it down, is pretty simple? Yeah, as I, have I, to, I, I think actually in just to show – just as a, as a pot shot against myself, I'm quite certain if we reviewed our past videos, I'm sure you explained to me at the, at the end of each chapter what each chapter was. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I, I think maybe it is the art, but I just, I, I have a hard time just really getting into this. But uh, well, it's not even just the uh, art. It, he, there's so much extraneous dialogue here. Well, that's it's that's so that's what takes me out of it. Is that I yeah. don't know when he's again, Cyspiria's trying so hard to get a voice for Gordon instead of just telling the story. That's how I feel. But it, look, uh, look, obviously you got the story to the point where I didn't, and, and obviously you said it with, you know, it, it. You got the gist of it. I didn't. I didn't even get the gist of it because I found the dialogue too superfluous. And it, it, it to me, it read like self pretension. It's like just let this. Yeah, it's a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent padded out. Like this could have been like based on what I just explained. That's one eight page story, yeah. and yet they stretched it out to three, and the story's just getting started. But no, it's over. Yeah. It's got to be leading into something. Otherwise, what? What's the point? Yeah, worst ever. If, if and whatever it leads more, into, I, I hope it. I hope it starts from. I hope it has a one-page synopsis explaining what you just did in one page, so we can get into the story. <laughs> yeah. uh, they'll probably, if I had, if I had to guess, what they'll probably do is they'll collect this back up in a one-shot. I don't know that that will help, because uh, um, again, it's tough. It's tough to tough to read. Uh, all right, up next, uh, I think it's your turn to go first, but I'm going to go first anyway because I know you didn't. Um, have a chance to read this in depth. DC Mech Part 3 yeah. from writer Kenny Porter. Baldemar Rivas is the artist. Mike Spicer on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. I got to think that this really is for new readers. Um, you know, we've talked about it being this mashup of DC superheroes and Transformers. Um, you know, maybe think of it as DC superheroes and Pacific Rim because we do have these heroes, whether it be Hal Jordan or Bruce Wayne or Kal-El or whomever in these giant mechs and they're fighting parademons and trying to fight off an invasion from uh, Apocalypse. And we also have Lex Luthor, who's supposedly trying to fight on the side of, uh, of Earth, but really is just out for himself as uh, the Lex Luthor, no matter which reality you're in, uh, is always trying to do. Um, and they've really focused so far, Kenny Porter, the writer, has focused so far on this animosity and this uh, acrimony between Bruce Wayne and Kal-El. Like Kal-El just showed up in the first issue in his giant mech and he's fighting against the forces of apocalypse and Batman is in his mech saying, who are you? I don't trust you. Paranoid. Like think of like the worst parts of Batman versus Superman, the movie. 
about how, you know, don't trust you. I'm going to try to kill you. I'm going to make bad armor, blah, blah, blah. Like I got bad flashbacks to Batman versus Superman here. It never made sense. Um, it's one thing to have Bruce be a little suspicious, but it's, an, it's another thing to have him be just outright stupid about the paranoia uh, when this guy's actions have shown you that he's on your side. Um, and then, and then uh, instead of using the name Martha, like in the movie, in this one, it's, um, it's Kal-El basically talking about, uh, I have to do whatever I can to save planet Earth because my parents sent me here as their dying wish. Um, and if I don't save the planet and complete my mission, then it means they died for nothing. And, you know, all of a sudden it resonates with Bruce because he lost his own parents. And then, you know, there's supposed to be some coming together moment. Uh, it's very heavy handed. It's very ham fisted. The art by Baldemar Rivas is very kinetic um, and very bombastic and over the top. And if you're, you enjoy this type of story with people in giant mechs, because uh, it d- definitely has a manga feel, then you're probably going to love this art. Uh, but again, this is just another one of those books that is not for me. This is not something I would ever read if it wasn't for the fact that we're covering it for this DC spotlight. It's just, I don't enjoy big giant mechs. You know, I'm not like a fan of Battletech it, or Robotech. It, it does or, seem to be something that is on DC's horizon though. DC, Dawn of the DC, they, they, in uh, Mark Wade's coming up, he's writing DC Big Bang. I, I, apparently when they explore the DC multiverse for the, for readers, DC mech is going to have its, its own world by the sounds of things. Yeah, I'm so, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it will, but that's just not a world that I'm interested in. I'm just, again, I'm not a fan. Uh, I've never seen any of the transformer movies. I, I'm just, it's just not my thing. Yeah. So if, if you are, then you probably will love this, but again, it's just, it's not for me. It is interesting that when Kal-El, um, does get his butt kicked by Darkseid at the end of this issue, and he crashes on Earth. He crashes in Kansas, um, okay. and there's a big giant farm machine that's being operated by Ma Kent that kind of pries open a hole and Paul, uh, in the chest of this machine, and uh, Pa Kent climbs inside and, and rescues Clark. Um, so we still get the Smallville connection, if you will. Maybe this will temper... <laughs> Uh, Kal-El a little bit and he, he won't be such a jerk because I got to be honest, Batman comes across as a real jerk in this series, but so does, so does Kal-El. Yeah. Um, they're both stubborn and they don't take the time to listen to each other. And so it's no wonder they don't get along. They both purport to want to save the earth, but put aside your, if you really cared, you'd both put aside your egos and work together instead of ignoring each other and just going off half cocked and getting your butt kicked on a regular basis. So they, they don't, the characters here, um, whether it's Clark or, uh, or Kal-El, I should say, uh, or Bruce, they don't come across as very super heroic. Um, and, and the others, whether it be Barry Allen or Hal Jordan or Diana Prince, um, they don't really come across as very formidable, to be honest. Everybody's just getting their butt kicked by dark side left and right. So, um, Yeah. Anyway, anything to add beyond what you said already? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't read it, and uh, you know, maybe I'll read the next issue. But uh, no, I'm. I'm. It's the one comic this week. I mean, out of seventeen or eighteen that I never read for DC, so not my cup of tea. Yeah, don't blame you. Uh, all right, well, moving on. Task Force Z number twelve, final issue of the series, written by Matthew Rosenberg. 
Eddie Barrows on pencils, Ibar Ferreira on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, and Rob Lee on letters. What did you think of this? I thought this was actually a nice ending to Task Force Z. I thought that uh, the, I thought the second half of I thought the first five six issues of Task Force Z was inspired writing by Tini and Rosenberg. I thought they were firing at all cylinders. I kind of lost my way a little bit. I, I got a little bit confused. I thought the storyline got a little little wonky. Uh, I got even a little bit confused by the storyline a little bit uh, through probably issues seven to to eleven. Um, and uh, but. It, it, it actually came together here nice with issue 12. Uh, I, I actually thought it was, was well done. I mean, basically it's the, it, and, and it makes sense because this is the, now in, in the final chapter, this final issue, we now know I, one of the reasons why it made this issue satisfying to me is that it was a little bit simpler to follow. I found because you had, it was much easier to say, okay, these are the good guys and the bad guys or the bad guys and the worst guys. And you got, I mean, you got the two teams, you got uh, Jason Todd, Man Bat, Two-Face, Grundy, are escaping and they're going against Bloom, Gotham Girl, and Gotham, and uh, and they're on you know and and they're basically fighting over they're fighting over the Lazarus resin, and ultimately uh, ultimately the the tower comes crumbling down, and you end up with great dialogue here, great character work between Jason Todd and Two Face, because I believe so, and. I never actually saw, I've never really saw Two-Face and Jason Todd as having all that much in common. Um, but, you know, uh, Jason Todd or uh, Two-Face at one point says to Jason Todd in this issue, he says, the one thing about guys like us is that it's pretty hard to break what is already broken. And it's, uh, you know, there's been a lot, Two-Face has appeared in a lot of DC comics lately, right? I mean, we we just got the, the, the One Bad Day Two-Face, which, which is really kind of wacky. I wasn't really a big fan of, neither were you. And Two-Face has been in, in, in other issues and he's been written differently. And here here we have Two-Face basically trying to be a good guy or at least at doing his best Amanda Waller impression. And I, and he's in fact going against Amanda Waller. He's going against Jerry Powers. and But he's still Two-Face. And, but the, the better side of his angels through the most of this series has manifested itself. It's been really Harvey Dent that's been in control of Task Force Z. And, and it's really Harvey, it's Harvey Dent's relationship with Jason Todd, which ultimately it's their relationship that helps them win the day. And, uh, and it's, I thought it was very well done. The action sequences are very well done. Uh, the, uh, the, the character moments between Gotham and uh, Gotham himself and Gotham Girl. Uh, ultimately, it was it's Jason Todd that talks Gotham out of uh, of uh, ba- basically basically killing him, saying, "Look, you mean you know there is a better way. We can bring you back to life. We got enough Lazarus resin. Uh, we can do that." Gotham eventually gets his mind back, his memory back. He realizes he's not Bane, uh, but he he did share some of Bane's memories. And uh, there's a moment here where, where there's an emotional moment between Gotham Girl and and Gotham where, where Gotham tells Gotham Girl, you know, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want more Lazarus resin. He, he wants to just sort of die on his own terms. He doesn't want to have his life extended. Inevitably, he'll die anyway. He'd rather just go and spend his last days having fun with uh, his uh, sister, Gotham Girl. And that's what they do. And it's... I think it's there there's there's a surprising amount of of emotional centerpieces in this 12th issue 
that I felt rewarded. There, there was, there was a payoff here to the Bloom storyline with Bloom ultimately being defeated <laughs> with uh, Jason Todd coming to a realization about himself. And ultimately it ends with Jason uh, Todd deciding he's going to go off to West Texas and take off and, uh, and maybe look for the Joker because the Joker was last seen in West Texas, according to Spoiler, who shows up at the end of the issue and tells him that. And, um, ultimately, uh, there's a, the, the surprise ending, which isn't perhaps too much of a surprise. It ends with a Harvey Dent returning, of course, but not as Harvey Dent, but as Two-Face, who both, and he essentially goes to the morgue and a lot of the Task Force Z members that we thought were dead, namely Deadshot, KG Beast, Madam Crow, Zaz, Arkham Knight, Copperhead, and even Manbat, they're all potentially going to be resurrected, and most of them were, except Manbat, resurrected by Two Face, who's going to form his own Task Force Z, uh, and that's that's something to st- uh, to to look out for in the future. And I really like that. It says it teases as just the beginning. I I actually uh, I actually loved the, the lettering as well. Every time every time Two Face spoke, it was like in a green. The, the word bubble was in like a dark slimy green, as opposed to Harvey Dent, who's just the standard uh, 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 white word bubble. Uh, I, I thought so many things worked. The character work here for so many players to come into play. I, I'm glad this this ended on a less confusing note, at least for me. And so this ends on a high note. Again, started with a high note. I thought the middle of the story was, middle issues were a little bit meh, but it ends on a high note for me. So what do you think? Yeah, uh, it definitely ended on a on a high note. This ended up being something so different than what I expected it to be. But, you know, and we've talked throughout about Matthew Rosenberg and how much, how well he knows these characters. So I thought it worked on a lot of levels. Um and it doesn't surprise me that it, it kind of ends with us wanting more and also hinting at more. Um, because while it was done very, very well, it's not like we were spoon-fed the answers. Even though we get a lot of, I don't want to say exposition um, or explanation, but by the end, all the pieces kind of come together. And you sort of realize what's been going on with Mr. Bloom really – being the, kind of the big bad of the, of the piece. Um, and of course, you know, when you see Two-Face pick up that briefcase at the end, you sort of know how that's going to go. And sure enough, it, it plays out exactly like that. So I think it worked on a, a lot of levels. I think the art was absolutely fantastic. And uh, yeah, I, I was just, I was really impressed. I really enjoyed this from start to finish. So yeah, Dexter Soy, uh, his, uh, uh, Oh, pardon me, uh, Eddie, Eddie Burrows. Eddie yeah, Burrows, great yeah. art. Adrian and Lucas on the colors. Yeah, it was always it, this. This series stood out for artistically for sure. Yep. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Batman Fortress number five. This is written by Gary Witta, art by Derek Robertson, color by Diego Rodriguez, letter by Simon Bolin. What do you think of this? I was uh, straight up. I. I've been enjoying this series. Uh, this particular issue was a real big miss for me. I'm this. You can pretty much skip this issue. I I don't know. I don't know what Gary. Where I I think he was just. I I, I question some of his choices of characters here, uh, or at least his the the direction that he goes in the story. This was a uh, sort of an action packed, fun story up until the end of issue four, and then. It gets the story just grinds to a halt here in this fifth issue. 
we waste uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We waste uh nine pages on Batman trying to recruit Jackson Hyde because for some reason it's really important to the story that we know we, that we're privy to a, a basically the details of Jackson Hyde's date with his boyfriend on a beach where they're confronting a bunch of surf bullies. I mean, I, this was look artistically Gary Robertson nails it a beautiful art on, you know, beautiful art. I mean, Really, you know, really good and uh, watching, you know, two guys flirt with each other in the first nine pages. Yeah, okay, good. Well drawn. I'm just saying it doesn't really serve the story. You know, uh, I don't know why it was necessary. And and it, and the thing is, it wasn't even character work because you don't learn anything about Jackson Hyde. We already knew he was gay. So I, I don't know why we needed that. And then Batman shows up on the beach of all places. And then Jackson Hyde, lo and behold, doesn't know that there's been an alien invasion. I mean, I know the guy, I mean, I, I know the guy, well, actually he's, I, I guess maybe in the ocean, they don't have TV or he didn't, didn't realize that earth, like didn't realize earth was invaded. Didn't realize where Arthur Curry was. Didn't realize that the justice league has been taken off the playing field. Uh, astonishingly ignorant. And then Batman. So, but it makes sense at least that Batman would recruit Jackson Hyde because you want him to recruit somebody who is familiar with water in the ocean because he's on a mission. The mission that Batman is trying to find people to help him for is to go to the Fortress of Solitude, which they know is somewhere at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so then he's going to go, he needs a thief. So then Batman's going to go and I'm thinking if Batman needs a world-class thief, obviously it's going to be Catwoman. But bafflingly enough, he chooses, he, he goes and he, he talks to Amiko Queen. Amiko, who is uh, Red Arrow. Uh, since when does Red Arrow know how to break into places? But apparently, in the, in the continuity of this story, this is, this is an out-of-continuity Batman story. So that's why I got to cut it some slack. I'm, but apparently, he goes to Amiko. Uh, I guess Catwoman is off-limits here because Catwoman's off the playing field. Catwoman's not even mentioned. And then Amiko here apparently broke into Iron Heights one time to break out her her half brother Oliver Queen, and so that in Batman's eyes means she qualifies to help him break into the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, I mean, she's she's just a martial artist who, who knows how to shoot a bow and arrow. I mean, I don't I don't know if she really you know. And Batman himself is a world class escape artist, and I mean, so I don't I don't see what Amiko brings to the table other than a real cool costume and some bright colors that allow a colorist, uh, Rodriguez, to really show off his skills. Uh, but I'm, I was really surprised by the character choices here. But at the same time, the, the dialogue is good. The dialogue is good. The rapport is good between the characters. The humor is there. Uh, I liked uh, uh, Dalo, or, or pardon me, Dahl, the Green Lantern squirrel. They has some moments there where he's almost like... I think like it's Dale. Dale, sorry, Dale, Dahl, sorry, Dale. Well, because the other, because the... the kind of squirrel green lantern we've seen before is chip oh chip and dale chip and dale yeah okay (laughs) i'm always butchering names thanks for the correction (laughs) but uh yeah so anyways i uh you know i'm I'm a a little bit baffled by by the character choices uh but you know everything gary weta has done here he's he's you know he 
he's doing what he wants. This is his Batman universe. And he's, he's the guy in the sandbox playing with his toys and he's going to do what he wants. And that's why Lex Luthor is kind of a bumbling buffoon president. Uh, Batman doesn't respect him. This isn't, uh, the way Lex Luthor is portrayed is kind of like a joke. Lex Luthor, you know, dresses up in his suit, in his Lex suit, but his Lex suit has the, has, as the United States office of the president symbol on it. And he's, he's just kind of a corny, he, he doesn't come across like a particularly intelligent Luther. He's kind of a, a dick. Uh, and of course, Batman is too, but Batman is, you know, he's not quite as dark as he normally is. So this is a different kind of Batman. We, we've known that from the beginning. So I realize I can't have my cake and eat it too, uh, selfish bastard that I am. So I'm, uh, I've, Enjoyed the story so far, but you could pretty much skip this entire issue because the only thing you need to know about this issue is on the last page. I mean, at the end of the last issue, Batman's going to find people to help him. All you need to know is he finds Jackson Hyde and Amico, and they travel with, into a submarine to the bottom of the ocean, and they find the Fortress of Solitude. So next issue, they're going to break into it. This issue was largely a skip it for me. It's not really necessary. But again, it's beautifully drawn by Gary Robertson with beautiful colors by Rodriguez. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, Der- Derek Robertson. Derek Gary Robertson. Right. Um, yeah, I, so I sort of agree with you in that I, but I wouldn't say, you know, skip it because it's, it's done so well. Like it's technically a very good comic. It, it has great characterization. It has beautiful art and it's, it's, it's funny. Like the Gary Witta sense of humor. Um, Gary Witta is a very witty guy. Uh, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, so yeah, while there was parts of the story where you're like, eh, do you really need to uh, to read this? No, not necessarily. But it has great interactions, again, between Batman and Lex Luthor. Um, but there were parts of it where I was kind of like, man, I, I do wish the story – that we, we'd gotten some more momentum, like the story was a little further along. That being said, yeah, it's fun. The, the one-liners, Amico commenting about Dale and – uh, like I said, those interactions between Lex and Bruce are, are really fun as well. I was also surprised, like anybody who listens on a regular basis will know that I predicted Black Manta. I guess I was just off one generation, right? I predicted Black <laughs> Manta. If you want basically somebody who who you know knows how to steal underwater, you're going to go to Black Manta. Now, I understand why you – could Black Manta sort of – is sort of um, a mix of what Amico and Jackson Hyde bring – Obviously, he doesn't have the ability to control water, and that's really the key part of bringing Jackson in because it's so far underneath. Um, so, yeah, and I do agree with you. Like, you would have thought if you're going to split it up, do Jackson and Catwoman. Like, Amiko, yeah, she's the really, like, that's a strange choice to bring Amiko in. But, again, she's somebody that hasn't had a lot. Jackson has gotten a lot of, um, like, screen time lately, you know, to borrow a television term. He's been in a lot of comics lately. Amiko hasn't. Like, we haven't seen much of her, so I'm glad to see her. Um, and even though this is a bit of a down issue in terms of moving the story forward, I still enjoyed it. Um, I, I still enjoyed it. So, yeah. Could you could you skip it? Yeah, you probably could. Should you? I don't think that you should. I think, you know, when you're reading it, it'll be kind of the the part of the story where you get to catch your breath and sort of appreciate what's happened so far before it ramps up into action again now that they've found the Fortress of Solitude. So looking forward to that. 
Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nice House on the Lake, number 10. Man, this has consistently been one of the best books on the stands. It's from writer James Tynan, Alvaro Martinez Bueno on art, Jordi Belair on colors, and World Design does the letters. What would you think of this one? Uh, I'm loving this. James Tynan, uh, the fourth, is rocking it again. I've uh, – you know, I really enjoyed Something is Killing the Children. I'm, I'm behind on reading Something is Killing the Children, but I, I did collect that that hardcover, that beautiful hardcover of the first 15 or 16 – first 15 issues of Something is Killing the Children. Absolutely gorgeous. Tinian knows how to write a horror story here. And, you know, uh, one thing that's really coming into play here is the horror element of Nice House on the Lake is finally starting to come into fruition in this 10th issue here. We got 10 people. Uh, this is the end of the world. And we got Walter, this alien that has saved 10 specific people from uh, a destroyed earth. And he puts them in a nice house on the lake. And we've so far what we've discovered, what we've been told throughout this story is that everything is essentially that uh, Walter has created this paradise for them on this nice house on the lake lake and they can have whatever they want uh and they they can't they can never die they 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 heal they can't get injured even if they try to injure themselves or hurt themselves uh they can't because they're essentially protected they can get all the food they want all the items they want anything they wish for they get and they they can't even kill themselves because they'll come back to life because and and what's revealed this issue is and and in the issues leading up to this uh one of the house guests that walter invited uh nora uh, Walter gave Nora the ability to sort of set the controls on the house, and they and there's a complex s- series uh, of controls that ultimately Wara, that that Walter tells Nora about, and how that came about, how that came to be that Nora became aware of of this is the is uh, is what the first essentially the previous nine issues sort of led to. So there's a lot of backstory here, but ultimately, let's just say that one of the house guests. Uh, who is um, one of the house guests? Uh, Jacob was actually working with Walter to set up this place in advance, but then sort of betrayed Walter. And Walter's superiors, alien superiors, only allowed a maximum of 10 people in the nice house on the lake. So Walter, of course, he hid Jacob away and he invited Ryan, which was an 11th house guest, but he never told his superiors, but he violated the rules. And if he tells the superiors that he has more than 10 house guests on the nice house on the lake that are being protected from the destruction of elsewhere on the planet, uh, that all of them will be destroyed. Well, the suspense in this particular issue really builds to a a, a, a a top level here of of suspense because the the house guests you know all all nine of them are essentially basically shooting each other because they they think it's kind of cool they're bored and they thought well let's shoot each other and and watch ourselves heal from the bullet wounds because they're they're sort of playing with the fact that they can't die and they're fascinated by that and so it's like it's almost like a a dare you know you know let me shoot you and you know you you dare to let me shoot you and and they're, they're playing that game meanwhile walter is explaining to nora how some of how some of the various controls work and that each individual house guest has their own symbol and you can manipulate the symbols and you can affect each house guest's memory because as we've discovered uh, a lot of the just when the house guests begin to discover some secrets of of this nice house on the lake, Walter eliminates their memory. Well, how is Walter doing that? This issue explains all that. And Nora, one of the other house guests, discovers how that's done. And while Walter's explaining all this to Nora, 
unbeknownst to them, another house guest by the name of Ryan, she is spying on them and she sees how to ultimately defeat Walter. And that is, she believes that if she controls the right panels, she can maybe eliminate the ability of Walter to heal himself and other house guests to heal themselves. And so when Walter and Nora move away from the controls, Ryan moves in just as the house guests outside are playing around and shooting each other, not thinking that they're going to die, but she's playing with the healing dial. And you know, that leads to a potential outcome that might uh, be very deadly for one of the guests. And that's that's kind of the horror element ang- angle of it. And it works so well because, and this is paced and structured so well as it's going back and forth between the conversations between Nora and Walter as Ryan is spying on them and as the house guests are sort of experimenting with shooting each other and just the back and forth nature of it and the coloring in the background. And you just, you're, I, I'm just on pins and needles wondering how this is going to end. And I just love this. I absolutely love this. This is one of my favorite of the week. And this is a real big week, so that's a high compliment to uh, Tinian. But I just, I really, really enjoyed this. And and a beautiful cover, too, I might add. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is 12 issues. And b- based on how it started, I thought that would be have been more than enough issues to tell the story that Tynan wants to tell. Now, after issue 10... I sort of feel like we're only in the middle of the story. Like to have this whole story wrap up in two more, only two more issues. It seems like we're going to have to go at somewhat of a breakneck pace. Um, I, I could be completely wrong about that. And, and it's going to wrap up nice and neat. I, I think it's, it's almost like selfish of me because it is so good. I just want it to last longer because there's layers, right? There's, there's what's happening in terms of, the actual reality that these house guests are, are facing their, their day-to-day reality. How are they surviving? How are they staying sane? I mean, when you think about it, the fact that they're shooting each other and watching the bullets pop out of each other's body, uh, that's, that's crazy to think, you know, like at any, you don't know what's going on. You don't know how this works at any point. It could stop working. And we kind of see that here. Um, but that's sort of the surface level thing that's going on. Then on on the back end, you have the fact that, okay, now we understand why we didn't see all the symbols because Walter himself is breaking the rules because he couldn't decide. He didn't know how to get it down from 11 people to 10. You know, originally he, he when he came to Earth and as he befriended people, he must have had in his mind that he was only going to be able to choose 10. Then at some point, it, that number became 11 and he doesn't know – how to you know, break the rules. He's, he himself is worried that he's going to get caught by his alien overlords. And then they're all kind of up shit Creek without a paddle. Um, and that's why one person is always kind of off, off to the side and not privy to what exactly is going on. That's an, that's another level. And then if you go an even higher level than that, let's talk about the, the, the ideas and the themes and the concepts of who deserves to live, who doesn't, why they're chosen, personal interaction, like there's so much to it. Um, I mean, you, this could series could go on indefinitely in a way because you could just have issues that just focus on the relationship between each of the individuals, right? When you talk about if you have 11 people, that's 10 relationships for each person. And, and really you could even say 11 because, you know, how do they feel about themselves? But let's just say 10 for the ease of, of manipulating the numbers. You could have an issue that focus on the relationship between one person and 
the 10 others, right? That's 10 issues for each. That's 110 issues, right? And maybe you yeah. don't have enough to explore there, but I think you do. I think, I think you do. So that to go back to my original point, which is, man, this really could last longer than 12 issues. Uh, it really, really could because there's so much going on here. We still haven't met the alien overlords. We still don't know, uh, what's behind that statement that Walter made at one point uh, about the fact that the world still could be saved in some way. Is this all a thought experiment? Is it a trial run for what these alien overlords are, are going to going to do? And the earth really hasn't come to an end. It isn't burning, uh, you know, destruction, Armageddon, apocalypse, whatever you want to say. So there's so much to this. Um, and it's fascinating. It's a fascinating character study. Uh, but yeah, my biggest thing is I, man, I, I want more of, of this. Like, not that I would ever condone putting somebody through the trauma of what these people <laughs> are going through, but yeah. like, think about how, like, compelling it would be if this were like a reality show and you really were able to trick people into thinking all the things that happened in this issue, uh, in this story really happened, right? Like, it, if you could really convince, 11 people that the world had come to an end and they were immortal and living in this house where they could just have write stuff down on a pad and the stuff would show up the next day. Like it's fascinating, fascinating to think about. And it's, it's one of those books where you can't help, but kind of put yourself in the position of some of the characters and wonder what you would do in those situations, which is why I want probably more examination of what exactly those situations and the dynamics are. Um, because it is a huge cast of characters, but I feel like we don't know – we haven't really – we know Walter best, right, out of anybody, and he's not even human. There's 11 other humans that we sort of know who they are. We sort of know their character, but not really, not to the point where I'd feel comfortable going, oh, I know how you know Reg would react in this situation, or I know how – uh, Ryan would react in this situation. No, we, we, I don't think we know them well enough. We've only gotten flashbacks into their previous lives. And I don't know that you can predict behavior based on how they act in this reality and in, in yeah. this situation, because it is so, uh, extraordinary. So yeah, there's so much more here. Um, but I suppose Tynan had it planned out, planned out for 12 issues and 12 issues is what we're going to get. But if we get more, man, I would be, I'd be really excited. So. Yeah, right. and it's, uh, it's next, yeah. Just oh, a quick ahead. note: it's, it's worth noting that each one of the members of the house has their own symbol, and the symbols are like like Easter eggs scattered throughout the narrative because they're all being controlled. And you can really get uh, into the story more if you you know. I want to go back and reread it and look at the placement because I think it's very intentional of the symbols of the various characters on on the pages. So, uh, kudos to the uh, artist uh, Alvaro Martinez Bueno. Yeah, this is one I'm definitely going to go back and reread once I have the first 12 issues. Even if it does continue past 12 issues, I'm going to sit down and reread the first 12. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I have no reason to think it will continue past 12, but it, I just I just have hope. But yeah, definitely something that's going to be reread by me a, a few times. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Harley Quinn number 22 from writer Stephanie Phillips. Art is by Matteo Loli. And David Baldione, colors by Rain Barreto, letters by Andrew Design. Uh, who killed Harley Quinn? Chapter one. So this is kind of what we've been waiting for. Uh, at least I have. Uh, Stephanie Phillips had to told us that she was killing Harley Quinn, and it was going to be a mystery of who killed her. 
I made the assumption she was going to be killed in space. It just made sense. She's not, doesn't have superpowers. She was traveling in space, uh, yet she survived that uh, and ends up just getting shot. Kind of a, a mundane way to go for Harley. Um, so who who killed Harley Quinn? Much in the way of who killed Jr. If you're uh, as old as I am or as Rocky, will remember back in the day, Dallas, very popular uh, television. <laughs> show at the time it was all over tv guide and yeah it was before the internet people had a lot more time on their hands in, in a lot of ways <laughs> but uh who killed jr so who killed harley quinn uh this is fun it actually starts off at the time jump forward kevin is trying to contact the league of assassins because he wants to put harley's body in a lazarus pit and have her resurrected uh, and then we kind of flash back when kevin is explaining to people um how she died and so we get uh, a chance to see Harley and this alien that we saw in the Harley Quinn annual that showed up in the backup of the Harley Quinn annual. The alien is super funny. Uh, Stephanie Phillips plays, gets to really uh, kind of give voice to some of the things that we all wish we could say at times. This alien is uh, a real smart ass. Perry, the parasitic voice. alien. Yeah, Perry. Perry. Yeah. Why do you call it Perry? Well, it's a parasitic alien. So Perry. Parasitic, yeah. Of course. He's, he's really funny. Um, and his interactions with Kevin, uh, it's clear he, even though it's just this little tiny tentacled alien, it clearly has more smarts than Kevin. Uh, but you know, Kevin has a big heart and we love him for that. So, um, I just, I enjoyed the issue. It was a lot of fun. Probably my favorite issue that we've had of Harley so far, uh, doesn't take itself too seriously. And I know I, I, I've talked a lot about, what I like best for Harley Quinn is when, um, you know, she's not zany, uh, and, and goofy. And so you might, you might be like, well, then why do you like this issue if she's not taking herself seriously? Well, it's a good, it's a good balance, right? She's not, you can understand why Harley makes the choices she makes because she's Harley, you know, there's fun stuff. Like she got a big paycheck from Luke Fox for that mission to the moon. And she buys a taco truck cause she thought it would come with tacos <laughs> and she buys a ferry to live on because she's tired of having to, to deal with landlords. And then this way she's her own landlord. So she's doing crazy stuff, but it makes sense because she's Harley. Um, but it's not crazy in that you can't understand why she does it. Right. Like I would make the argument that Harley's decisions here are more logical than Bruce Wayne putting on a, a sock over his face and going and attacking a guy or, uh, or Superman putting war world in orbit. Like I can't logically justify those decisions, but I can logically understand what Harley does. I mean, who doesn't love tacos? Right. So I, I really enjoy this. Uh, it also, this story gives a lot of agency to Kevin. I mean, that's a pretty dedicated friend to travel up to the Himalayas, um, to get Harley's body into a Lazarus pit. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily end on the best note when Harley emerges from the Lazarus pit. Uh, we know there's things going on. There's things lurking in the pits right now. And from what it uh, sounds like here, Harley's actually the first one that has been put into a pit in, in its current state. So the fact that we get unpredictable results isn't, uh, isn't that surprising. So we'll have to see how it all plays out. But uh, I thought the art was fantastic. I thought the story was really, really fun. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I was, I was really happy with this issue. What did you think? Well, I'm not, I'm not really sure how much, if I, if I'm going to apply continuity to this, uh, I mean, I, I almost 
I almost don't want to because then I, I'm more inclined to be harsh on it. Uh, bec- but I don't want to be harsh because it, the story is just like, say, it's fun. It's kind of fun because I, I will say that there's no way you're going to convince me that Kevin knows how to – I mean, nobody knows where Lazarus Pits are. No one knows where the League of Assassins is. Kevin is an idiot. Kevin has no idea how to find the League of Assassins. This fat guy, I mean, I mean, uh, it takes him, how long does it take him to, how did he drag the body from, from Gotham Harbor, Hardy's body from Gotham Harbor and find a way to take it all the way to whatever Tibet is or wherever the League of Assassins are in some top of a snowy mountain. And then by then she'd have been, she'd have been a rotting, decomposing corpse by then, too late for the Lazarus uh, resurrection. But again, that's, I shouldn't be asking questions like this for this Harley comic. Uh, and th- this is part of my frustration with Harley as a character in general. That's not the fault of the writer, Stephanie Phillips. Harley is everything to everybody. I just want to have fun with this story. And, and I'm, I am actually having fun. I'm actually intrigued by the mystery as to who killed Harley. We, we just see this shadowy figure in the background with a cloak on her, his or her head. So who killed Harley? I don't know. Uh, Harley is resurrected. You make an interesting point. Is is Harley is Harley the first character to use the Lazarus Pit in its present form? Uh, maybe I'm not even sure. You know, maybe that's an interesting I mean, question. That's, what we're, that's I, what we're told. Well, I well that's what Angel Breaker says. But I thought they used yeah. uh, Deathstroke. I thought they resurrected Deathstroke in the same uh, sort of pit. But maybe, obviously not. If Angel Breaker says, well, actually, I guess that's a, that's a good point. But I, I mean, it, I don't think it was the League of Assassins or obviously Angel Breaker that did that. So they, she might not be aware right. of, of that. So maybe, I mean, they haven't used it basically. Yeah. And we know that yeah, I mean, we, says, yeah, uh, pits in their current state are untested. Yeah. So what, what I find interesting here is when, when Harley gets out of the pit, she looks almost like a, more like a female Joker than ever before. She looks really, really bad, really me, really evil. And Slade Wilson certainly was that way when he came out of the pit, but Slade Wilson Deathstroke was also infected by the dark, uh, by the, you know, by the by the great darkness. Great darkness. So it's 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 hard to it's hard to say. But any in any event, I'm intrigued. This is this is infinitely the best. This is much better than any previous Harley issue that Stephanie Phillips has written. I'm immediately I'm much more. This intrigues me much more already. And so I'm looking forward to where it takes us. So uh, yeah, not bad. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Okay, up next, Batman Beyond the White Knight, book number five, script art cover by Sean Murphy, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Andrew Design. Uh, this one really showcases the relationship between Bruce and Jack Napier. It's been a feature of this story so far, but we see that Jack Napier actually gets a chance to take over Batman's body because um, Bruce is having a panic attack, which I still – there's – that might be the one aspect of the Sean Gordon Murphy verse that I just, that doesn't work for me. The idea of Bruce having panic attacks. Um, <laughs> that's just really, really strange, but it does give uh, an insight for Jack into Bruce and who he is. What's even more interesting is what didn't make it into the issue. If you read the little, um, the little essay in the back from Sean Gordon Murphy, he talks about how he wanted to lean into that even more in terms of, how Bruce was able to manipulate his own body to, to get the adrenaline going in order to do the things that he needed to do as Batman. And it gives new insight in, uh, for Jack um, 
into who Batman is and, and why he does the things he does. You know, he just assumed, um, and we get a little bit of this in the actual story. He just assumed that being Batman was, was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, and he didn't realize the kind of the costs that, that go along with that. So that's one aspect of the story that's really, really fun. Um, and it, it even goes into the end toward the end of the story when Batman, uh, has escaped from the powers facility where all the bat equipment is and goes to meet Harley in a secluded location. And, uh, at that time when, when Jack gets there, he, he's in Bruce's body, but he's still controlling it. So he gets a chance to say things to Harley, some of the things that he always wished he could have said, uh, but didn't get a chance to before he died. But we know that Bruce is actually married to Harley right now. So it's this interesting dynamic of these, this love triangle uh, ending on the final page with Bruce and, uh, and Harley kissing. And we know it's actually Bruce in, in charge of the body, if not because of the fact that it now looks like Bruce, uh, but also the shadow of Batman and Harley kissing uh, in the background. So on top of all that, we also get uh, Bruce telling Terry McGinnis that Derek Powers is the one responsible for his uh, his father's death. Now, Terry was already suspicious of it. Part of the reason he's been working for Derek Powers, as we learned, uh, I think, last issue, was that he did have his suspicions. And so he thought the best way to, to find out what really happened to his father was to work for Derek Powers and, and find out who was behind it. So. Uh, we had that happen this issue as well. So this was a, a jam-packed issue, a lot of action. Um, I'm very impressed with Sean Gordon Murphy as a, a storyteller, even beyond his artwork. Um, he has improved as a writer. That's not, not to say that you know the original Batman White Knight series was bad. In concept, it was very, very good. Um, and it was solid in terms of dialogue and scripting as well. Um, but there have been improvements. He's better at timing. He's better at pacing. He's better at injecting little character moments and little bits of humor in the story than he was, uh, which makes complete sense to me. He's a very talented guy. And the more he's had the opportunity to write, the better he's gotten. And that's what you hope for from a creator. So um, I was never a, a huge Sean Gordon Murphy verse fan. Um, I, I thought it was interesting enough. I would have been fine. At least I thought I would have been fine after the first White Knight series ended if that would have just been the end of it. It was super popular. DC decided to let it continue and I'm glad they did because this world that Murphy is building is it's different enough with you know changes like having Jason Todd be the first Robin. Um, it's different enough that it offers something unique and it doesn't feel like it's just uh, changing things for the sake of changing them. Like Murphy's adding in things that are different and like, you know, Jason Todd being the first Robin, which then informs the story and makes it different inherent in its foundations as opposed to, oh, well, I changed this so that you are not reading the same story over and over, even though everything has played out the same. Batman's parents were killed. Uh, Dick Grayson's parents were killed. Dick Grayson became the first Robin, so on and so forth. Um, you know, having Joker regain his sanity and, and, um, then be assassinated again, that th those are not just changes for the sake of change. They're foundational changes that fundamentally change the way this universe is uh, affecting its characters and the way the characters are affecting this universe. So when you add in Sean Gordon Murphy's storytelling as visually on top of this is great art. You have something really, really special. So, 
Uh, it's one of those situations where I like this world so much, I want as much of it as I can get. But Sean Gordon Murphy is only one guy and he can only do so much work per month. And I sort of wouldn't want somebody else to come in and start messing with it. I, I don't know that I necessarily would like other people to just, you know, come in here and start telling their own stories. Now, we've gotten a few other issues. Uh, we had the Red Robin one shot that was written by somebody else, but it's somebody that had been working with Sean Murphy for quite a long time in this universe as well. So again, I wouldn't mind having more because I am interested, but at the same time, it's like Murphy does such a fantastic job of, of nailing the feel of this universe that I kind of only want him to play in this sandbox, if you know what I mean. Uh, anyway, I, I really enjoyed this issue. What'd you think? Well, you know, the relation it's, it's, you know, it's kind of the worst kept secret that the, the emotional core of this particular uh, story of Batman Beyond the White Knight has been the relationship between Harley Quinn and Bruce Wayne. And you can make a, a compelling argument that the relationship between Bruce Wayne and Harley Quinn was at the core of the other uh, uh, Murphy versus Batman stories as well. Uh, one thing I want to point out is that there's a beautiful variant cover and there's also a virgin uh, cover without the meaning without the trade dress of Harley Quinn. And note that Harley Quinn is uh, the outfit she's wearing. It's not red and white. It's actually sort of like almost like black, black, gray, black and grayish, more like Batman colors. So it's 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 sort of symbolically showing Harley Quinn is definitely on the side of Batman. And yeah, J. Scott like, Campbell cover. So I'm yeah. sure that'll be super popular. Oh, and, and I didn't even talk about make sure you talk about Derek Powers and Blight. I didn't even mention that. Uh, that's right. And that, because one of the variant covers has Blight on the cover. And for those who are fans of the Batman Beyond series, Blight is sort of like it's probably blight is probably one of the more popular villains of batman beyond in the uh, of terry mcginnis in the in the traditional batman beyond story uh derek powers here uh as uh you mentioned already jace at one point in this particular issue uh bruce wayne does inform uh, terry mcginnis that his father william mcginnis was in fact killed by derek powers uh in order to keep his secret about this project that he's going on you know, utilizing Batman tech to create his own army to sort of take over the take over Gotham or whatever the case might be. And, uh, you know, Terry McGinnis throws a essentially throws a batarang at him and uh, hits uh, it ends up hitting some uh, a, a sort of like a, a containment with chemicals behind him. And then chemicals fall on Derek Powers and he ends up uh, becoming he ends up becoming blight. Uh, at least he doesn't officially become blight in this issue, but you know you can tell that something happens to him, and he, he looks like he he's killed. But of course we know that. Uh, and I and and you know what's kind of interesting, and I kind of like the fact is that a, a variant cover actually teases the villain in the issue, and the villain is not. He's not technically come out as blight in the issue, but the cover makes it clear it's blight. So I kind of like that a little bit of, you know, a little bit playing with the fans, a little bit expectations, throwing a bone to the speculator market, which, you know, is always hit and miss. So I thought that was uh, well done. I There's something absolutely beautiful. It almost writes itself, but it doesn't because only a really good writer can pull it off. But you touched upon it. It's it, There's something uh, tragically ironic that Batman's greatest villain has to be the one that speaks to Harley and confesses love for Harley through Bruce Wayne. <laughs> and that, cause it's, it, it's not Bruce Wayne himself that opens up to Harley. It's w through the words of Jack Napier, but he's obviously 
in Harley's eyes, it's Bruce Wayne saying the words, but it ends up being Bruce Wayne that ultimately kisses Harley, even though it is in fact Jack Napier is the one that is expressing the love. So I'm wondering if there's something to that. Uh, if Because I know it's, it's Bruce Wayne, but it's Jack Napier, but it's Bruce Wayne. Uh, perhaps, you know, I, I like the psychology of it, that this idea that, ba- ba- you know, Batman almost has like panic attacks. Could the panic attack be related to his feelings for, for, for Harley? You know, his inability to reconcile with that and maybe his panic attacks will be gone or whatever it is that he's having that's causing so much angst in the personal life of Bruce Wayne. Clearly, it's Harley. And I thought the other part of this story is the daughter of uh, Harley Quinn and Jack Napier, Jackie. She's rescued by uh, she's rescued by, uh, I guess, Bruce Wayne, Batman slash Jack Napier. And uh uh, there's some really good moments there. The dialogue moments here are just really so well done. The dialogue is great. All, all the moving characters, like there's Barbara Gordon, there's Red Hood, there's Nightwing, there's just Murphy. Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy has managed to 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 create his own universe. And as the highest compliment I can give him, there's actually consequences here. There's consequences here. If somebody dies or gets injured here. I, I, I actually feel that it's going to be permanent. Uh, when, when somebody's taken off the, I actually have the illusion. I even feel, even though we haven't had a really a major death in this, any of this series, I actually, I'm buying into the illusion of death, the illusion that there's actual consequences in this story. And that's what I like about it. Because of course, in the mainstream Batman universe, we know that nothing is ever, we're always returning to the status quo. I love the Murphy verse because it feels that the things actually have consequence and that there's a price that they pay. And I feel, and this just feels more real because of that, uh, because that, that uh, illusion is just there. And there's, there's a higher degree of verisimilitude here than in the mainstream DC books for Batman. And yeah, I, I'm just loving it. And uh, yeah. I mean, kudos to Murphy. He apologized recently on Twitter because of the the delay. He said there wasn't going to be further delays on this. I can tell, you know, uh, I forgive him. I'm, you know, this this is good stuff. If I got to wait a few extra weeks for uh, this type of storytelling, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, I hope he, I hope he's right. I mean, I don't mind the delays either, but uh, we know that delays can really rob series of momentum and hurt the sales. So for for that reason, I hope it comes out on time. Yeah. Uh, all right. We have the return of Human Target, uh, issue number seven. We did have to hold us over. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, the one shot. Uh, now the regular series returns with issue number seven from writer Tom King. Art is by Greg Smallwood. Letters are by Clayton Cowles. We have some fantastic covers. Um, main cover by uh, by Greg Smallwood, but there's also a, a variant by uh, Art Germ, and then there's some um, – some uh, uh, ratio variants as well. So uh, yeah, I, gorgeous, gorgeous covers. Um, and so happy to have this back. Uh, uh, yeah. Fantastic series, man. Yeah, I'm it's, loving this. Yeah. It's so good. In this, in this particular issue, um, we get Christopher chance talking to fire his investigation on who tried to kill Luther and ended up killing chance because chance was just, uh, dis- disguised as Luther, his, his investigation has led him to fire. He believes fire to be the one that killed Luther and he confronts her about it as uh, fire and Christopher chance have dinner one night. And it, it's very interesting how it all plays out. And then come to find out the temptations that fire was giving the way she was coming on to Christopher chance 
was all kind of a test because she knows that Chance and her best friend Ice are uh, are in a relationship, and she basically was testing Chance to see if he would take advantage and and cheat on Ice, basically for lack of a better term. Um, and so I, I like that it it's very uh, it feels very true to who Fire is as a character, and and really kind of uh, leverages that relationship that Fire and Ice have which is a very strong bond. And then at the end of the issue, it all kind of comes full circle with who actually poisoned Christopher Chance, because according to Ice, it wasn't her, but the person that it is may have already paid the price. So uh, it's hard to overstate just how fantastic this issue is. Um, I I don't know. I mean, if that's who is really behind it, that makes perfect sense that it would be that way. But the one thing that I wonder is, okay, so if that's who really killed him and Christopher Chance and Ice have already taken care of that character. And if you've been reading along, you should know who it is. Um, <laughs> you got to say it. Come on. Then I'll, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you, I can't I, just cause I go first. Doesn't mean I get to have all the reveals. Okay. I always like this. I like to save some reveals for you. Well, but the, the reason that I bring that up is, well, if, if that's the case, and that's really the person that killed Chance. And Chance already kind of had his revenge retroactively, I suppose you could think about it. How do we have five more issues of the series when we only need like one more to wrap it up? But this yeah. is only issue seven. So yeah. I don't know where it's going to go from here, but I am along for the ride because this is the best comic that's coming out right now. Uh, oh. It is. It's just amazing. Like, again, going back to that Greg Smallwood art capturing the that mod feeling that sixties feeling is it's just, it's amazing. I mean, Rocky said before we started recording, he's like, every time I read human target, it makes me want them to make more James Bond movies set in the sixties. And that's exactly, (laughs) that's exactly 100% accurate. So uh, what were your thoughts on this issue? Uh, Well, there's that, but you know, you touched upon it. The, the, the character work work of, of Greg Smallwood, and I and I got that right. It's Greg Smallwood. There are scenes here where you you first of all, Tom King. Kudos to you. The dialogue's fantastic. It's fantastic. This the the sexual innuendo, the back and forth between Christopher Chase and Fire 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 is clearly trying to intentionally. You learn teasing Christopher Chase, trying to get him to to be to make a move on her because she's testing him on behalf of like Ice because she wants to protect Ice and she wants to make sure that Chris isn't some ne'er do well and and but like the the looks and the sexuality and and. You don't even need dialogue. You can tell what's going on just by the pictures and it's absolutely perfect. It's, it's so beautiful. I would love, frankly, I'm pretty sure I could get the gist of this story just by looking at the pictures without the dialogue. And, uh, but you know, kudos to Tom King here. His dialogue does actually add something to it. Uh, this is so well done. Uh, I mean, I mean, how about this phrase? I've fallen for ice and have fire in my arms. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, this stuff, you almost think it writes itself, but it doesn't. But, you know, it, it makes me wonder how in the hell, why haven't people made the connection between fire and ice before? And, you know, and here they are sort of, I mean, it looks like Christopher Chase can have his pick of, what do you want, fire or ice? You know, I mean, this gives this is the real Game of Thrones, you know. Uh, uh, but in any event, just this is just 
really, truly well done. He's interrogating fire. And at the beginning, he's dancing to, to a song called There's a Little Bit of Bad in Every Good Little Girl. And I Googled it. It's a 1914 song by Bill Murray, not the actor, but by a, by an old musician in the, well, 1914. Anyways, but I listened to it as I, as I, as, as you watch them dance and the way that Greg Smallwood illustrates them dancing in each other's arms. And they're sort of, you can tell they're reading each other. They're getting a sense for each other. And the, the thing is, they're both there. They both want to protect ice. And this almost the entire issue is them sort of navigating and trying to get a read on each other because Chris, Chris thinks that fire is likely guilty because all the evidence points to her. Fire has the motive, the means, the opportunity to have obtained the poison. She got money from Martian Manhunters. She acquired the water from Booster Gold, which contained the poison. I mean, this, I mean, all the evidence points to fire. And yet they have this little game back and forth. There's a great scene where, you know, she looks sexily at him and, and he says, uh, she says, you know, he says, is there someplace we, we can go? And she goes, well, you got a Ferris wheel? And he goes, hmm. She goes, what? She goes, I got a Ferris wheel. And then he, he imitates Lex Luthor and he calls one of Luthor's underlings and arranges for, for, to be on a Ferris wheel with this gorgeous woman named Fire. And oh my God. And she's so sexy. Uh, and while they're on top of the Ferris wheel, Christopher Chance, I mean, he, uh, he actually jumps off the Ferris wheel to, so, to sort of test fire and fire saves him, but he actually jumps off. And because, and like he says to fire, you know, I, I did this for you, but you know, maybe you did do it, but you're still a hero. And you know what? Now we're even, you saved my life, but tell me, did you do it? Did you do it? And ultimately, uh, you know, he gets pissed off at her. All of this is, you know, normally sometimes when I read a story like this, sometimes stories seem to be forced to get the artist just so as an excuse so the artist can draw a beautiful image. But the, everything about this story feels natural. Everything. Like nothing feels forced. This feels like a natural conversation between two very pretty people, but it's well-grounded. The story is good. The dialogue's fantastic. And uh, and I, I'm stunned that people, that there's still people out there that don't like the story because of what they did to Guy Gardner. It's like, Good God, guys, stop reading the comic and read something else because, you you know, you're missing the forest because of all those trees. But uh, this is easily my one of the best comic books of the year, hands down. And speaking of which, you allowed me to say it. I'll say it at the end. Fire and Ice, they meet with Chris Chase. And at the end, and uh, Fire says, look, I, I know that the evidence points to me, but it wasn't me, but the the person who actually did it. I didn't poison anyone, but I, I did it for Guy. And it's she says that Guy asked me to get the water, and I did. So Guy Gardner did it. So the evidence she's suggesting points to Guy Gardner. And then it's quite clear that Fire does not know that Guy Gardner has been killed already, that he's dead. And so the the joke about this is I've I've never been a Guy Gardner, much of a Guy Gardner fan. So I, I actually it put a shit eating grin on my face when when he when he was killed in a previous issue, <laughs> but a lot of people seem to be upset about it. I just don't care. Uh, I'm glad he's dead, uh, but he's probably not dead. But I'm glad he's dead at least in this in this story. Uh, but is he dead? Maybe Guy Gardner really is the guy the 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 genes or the genius behind this uh, operation after all. This 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 attempted murder of Lex Luthor gone wrong. But I I just love this. I love where this is going. There's so much obvious misdirection here, but yet it's not so obvious. 
it's so well done. And man, I just, you know, I can't wait for this to come out in hardcover form. I know they're, the first six issues are being collected as a one hardcover, but I want it to be all in one giant hardcover. Because uh, I got his Adam Strange. I got the Mr. Miracle. I got the, uh, I got uh, the Vision. And so it's nice to have that Tom King run all in a row along with Rorschach. So it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, you're 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 100 correct about the character work that Greg Smallwood does in his art. I mean, the art does all. The, and Tom O'King will be the first one to say, "Yeah, it's all. This is all. This book is all Greg. Uh, he's doing all the heavy lifting, uh, and he's doing a fantastic job." I, I sort of agree with you about the like. Are there Guy Gardner stands out there who are really mad that he got killed in an out of continuity book? Like, did you not? Did you read the book? He deserved it. He 100% deserved it. He was told multiple times by Christopher Chance and by Ice to stay the hell away and stop harassing her, and he did not. He got what was coming to him. I'd never seen that guy act like such a jerk. Now, granted, I'm not the biggest Guy Gardner fan in the world either, although I did really enjoy the characterization that Tom Taylor gave to him. I would read that version of Guy. But this version <laughs> of Guy that we got here was just insufferable. Like, And I know that's part of his characterization right like he's this blowhard kind of guy but that's and that's more of a new thing he didn't really have that when he first showed up back in the pages of green lantern um kind of happened in the the um wahaha era of the justice league from giffen mateus and uh uh mcguire um and everybody kind of played off of that. But this was that this was that blowhard dialed up to 11. So he definitely got what's coming to him. I do agree with you. And that might be the answer to my question, how can this go for five more issues? I mean, supposedly if you have a Green Lantern ring, you can't be killed. But you have to be wearing the ring if I'm not mistaken. But, I mean, it's comics. There's any number of ways for them to bring Guy back, I'm sure. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, yeah, it he, Christopher Chance may have gotten his revenge without even realizing it already. So, yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on. Up next, we have Superman Space Age Book Two. This is from writer Mark Russell. Mike Allred is the artist. Laura Allred on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Um, big book, eighty pages. What do you think? Wow. Um, uh, well, it, it's a big book, and I actually uh, I feel that this story is. Is padded. I, uh, I look. Uh, I, I first of all, I, I don't even mind the story in and of itself. I, I, and I'm a, I love uh, Mike Allred's and, and Laura Allred. I love their their artistic. Uh, I, I like their their style. I like their artistic style. So that actually pulls me in as one of the reasons why I'm getting this because I just love that style of art. I'm a big fan of Madman and uh, X Force and uh, and and I just really enjoy and even It Girl he did a series called It Girl I picked up some back issues in a dollar bin just just last week again just beautiful cover- covers bring back It Girl Mike Elred I want It Girl to return It, it Girl and the Atomics great great series but in any event uh, this is a I felt this was a little bit um, almost a little bit by the numbers for me but uh, essentially it's this feels like a Superman, a life story. Just look, uh, because I know that uh, 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 Russell, Mark Russell, did Fantastic Four life story. This feels like Superman, a life story, because it's going through Superman from the fifties, the sixties, into the seventies. In this particular issue, we have Clark Kent's budding relationship with Lois Lane, 
Uh, we see Lois Lane's career as a reporter really take off. She takes, uh, she steals the Watergate story from Clark Kent. She, she, they, they figure that out. Meanwhile, Clark Kent, along with the the Justice League, they they battle, uh, they battle Brainiac, and Brainiac is warning them of a coming crisis on Infinite Earths. One of the criticisms of the first issue in, by some quarters, not by you and I, but by some quarters, that's why I'm bringing it up, is that the first issue seemed to suggest that Superman, some people criticize Superman for just sort of waiting for the end to come, that he was told by Pariah because he met Pariah in a bar <laughs> in the in the 19, early 1960s, and Pariah told him about this impending doom and this crisis and there's nothing you can do about it. And there, there, it showed scenes of the future of Superman holding Lois and their son as the world was ending and people criticized that Superman wasn't doing anything. Uh, that was a premature criticism, I, says, I suspect that it was, because in fact, uh, there's it's it's very likely that Superman – uh, and the Justice League will, in fact, do something to prevent the crisis or to combat the crisis, and that they're not—they're not, they're not going to sit idly by and do nothing. And uh, you, there's so much dialogue here; so much happens. You get a lot of Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne looks like Elvis Presley. Bruce Wayne in the '70s looks exactly—I think he looks exactly like Elvis Presley. And uh, I think it's—I uh, think it's quite—I uh, think it's quite comical. But uh, Mike, uh, kudos to Mike Alred uh, on his art here, uh, and Laura Alred is that they, they, they do a really good job of capturing the, the the zeitgeist of the particular decade that they're drawing in, and they just do a really good job. And now, if there's one criticism I have, it's you know, it's it doesn't feel it, because it's telling a story, it's truncating so much information in eighty some pages, but it just feels doesn't really feel exciting enough it just there's something missing and i don't really know what it is it just feels by the numbers and this happens and this happens and this happens and then we get a major death of a justice league member in this issue and even that didn't it it felt kind of blase brainiac ultimately attacks earth because he wants to recruit Brainiac, Brainiac of this universe wants to recruit Superman because he thinks Superman is the only being that can help him defeat the Anti-Monitor in the crisis. So he's trying to convince Superman to sacrifice your planet, come and join join me and the other Superman to save save the multiverse in this coming crisis. That's what Brainiac wants. But of course, Superman's not going to agree to that. Of course, he's not. And then in, in the battle against Brainiac, the Justice League stop... Uh, defeats Brainiac, but they do so at a great cost and they lose a member of the Justice League uh, who, I you know, I, I guess I, you know, I won't, I won't spoil it, but he has a green ring and uh, that didn't really feel all that big. And then in nine, we, we flash forward to 1974, uh, Clark Kent and Lois Lane kiss for the first time. And then 1975, then they get married. And, um, you know, Clark Kent defends Lois prior to that, and uh, Perry sees the potential for Clark Kent to be an editor, and you see the beginnings of him potentially becoming Clark Kent becoming editor-in-chief. That'll probably happen in the next issue in the 80s or 90s. And uh, But again, we're, we're, this is a story, this is one long Superman life story that is, I think the bookends are going to be the beginning and the endings involving a crisis on infinite Earths. And how, you know, I don't know how the ending's going to be, but this is, I, I don't even mind the pacing. I just, uh, if it's just, it doesn't grab me. It's not bad. It's not bad. This is a nice story. It's a by the number story. 
but it doesn't really grab me. You know, there's nothing I don't find at this point, nothing really stands out as being really memorable to me yet because it's very by the numbers and all the major news events are from our own world. So nothing really stands out other than the death of uh, Green Lantern in this issue, maybe a little bit. But even that was, you know, okay. Uh, then what's going to happen next? But in any event, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, but I, I keep thinking that this is a story that this series should be more. With this many pages after two issues, we should have more substance to the story. He's covering a lot of ground here, and I'm not really sure why why he's spending so much time on Batman, for example. So much time, pages and pages and pages on Batman, and then very little on the rest of the Justice League. And it's just very curious choices in terms of where he's focusing his storytelling. And I'm not entirely sure where we're going with it, but I don't know. How do you think? Yeah, I get, I get, I get where you're coming from. Uh, and I think you, you, na- you nailed it when you said this is Superman life story, right? Because really what he does in those life story books or, or what he did in, in fantastic four life story anyway, uh, cause he didn't do the previous one. That was Zdarsky. Um, but he took real world events and he weaved them in and out of the lives of the, the Fantastic Four. And it's it's sort of similar to what is happening here. Um, and really, he's, he's commenting on, you know, political and societal things that are, are happening in the late 60s and 70s and how it affects superheroes. So it's more a commentary on, on that. But in terms of what's actually happening in the story, yeah, it, there's not a, a lot to grab you. What I did find interesting is that there were – and enjoyed – is there are hints, you know, by, by putting Pariah in the first issue and now bringing that back up and having Brainiac show up here and talk about the anti-monitor, you know, obviously that's the, the first crisis on Infinite Earth. He's, he's tying it into, you know, current DC events really, really well, which I wouldn't necessarily expect from a book that is basically Superman uh, life story, like you mentioned. So I, I am enjoying that. I feel like if you're a fan of Mark Russell and you like what Mark Russell does uh, in terms of tying in superhero stories and these beloved superhero universes into kind of real world events and real world, you know, political issues and problems with the haves and the have nots. And um, in in this one, a big theme is uh, the rise of suburbia, right? Uh, I, I imagine at some point we'll get back to, because you already see the seeds planted, with, you know, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Batman, about how we, we read a Batman story recently where, uh, when I was talking about the backup in Detective, we read a story recently where um, somebody was buying up a bunch of property and, you know, burning it down. It's this, it's the Batman thread in this book where Bruce Wayne decides to step down as CEO of Wayne Enterprises because he wants to devote more time to being Batman to help out the little guy. Maxwell Lord actually becomes a CEO and, you know, sells this idea of suburbia, gets a bunch of people to move out of Gotham and then hires a bunch of thugs to go around burning down buildings so they, they can buy it up dirt cheap and build condos. So again, this is kind of real world stuff here when we talk about the rise of suburbia and the decay of, um, of urban centers. And then it seems like the seeds are planted to get to a point of, gentrification, which if you're not familiar with that term, that's basically when kind of rundown urban centers get bought up very cheaply by corporations and then they infuse a bunch of capital into them and then raise the 
the price of housing and all of a sudden the people that live there get priced out. So again, these are real world issues that Superman himself, we see, we see again, Superman in the hands of Mark Russell, the writer is struggling to try to find a way. Batman is struggling to try to find a way they say, how do you fight this stuff? Like Batman's like, I know how to punch people. I know how to stop thugs. But when he eventually realizes what's going on and sort of attacks the elite of of Gotham city because he realizes they're the real problem. Like, how do you fight this stuff? How do you fight, you know, something that is so systemic, right? Like greed and, uh, corporatization of, uh, of land and people being priced out of their homes and not being able to afford the cost of living, stuff like that. Like that's not something that Batman or Superman can punch. So again, if you're a fan of Mark Russell and you like the political leanings of his writing, you will like this. If you don't, you probably won't. Now I mentioned during the, when we were talking about the first issue and I've talked about it before, whenever uh, we've had Mike all red stuff, I'm not a big fan of all reds art because he uses a very heavy line. Um, like I think one of my favorite silver age artists was Gil Kane and he used a really heavy line too. Uh, and he's maybe the only artist that I really enjoyed having a thick line, but even his line weights weren't as as thick as all reds. I feel like all reds maybe has the heaviest line weights of anybody that I've ever seen. And it gives a real uh, distinctive feel to his artwork. Um, his image feels, they feel very powerful, but they also feel very static. So I say all that to say, I'm loving the story. I'm loving the visual storytelling. This is probably my favorite Mike Allred uh, book that I've read. And I don't think he's necessarily changed his art style. It's nothing like that. It's just that uh, a lot of the ideas and themes that Mark Russell's exploring here are so heavy that kind of the heavy line weight sort of work for it um, because it adds so much weight to the art. So uh, I'm really enjoying it. The colors are very primary. Uh, and as I've said a thousand times, you know, pr primary art or primary colors on artwork really helps sell it as kind of a traditional superhero comic. Uh, and Laura Allred, obviously uh, related, that's Mike's wife, if you're not familiar. Um, she knows how to get the best out of the line work that her husband uh, lays down on the pages. So uh, this is really working for me. Uh, again, probably my favorite thing that uh, I've ever read from uh, from Allred. And uh, I'm a fan of Mark Russell. So like I, I read this and I was like, man, that is a really great comic. Now, I totally get where Rocky's coming from. Like this isn't something that, you know, really celebrates the hope of the DC universe in any way, which is sort of interesting because it is set in the silver age uh, in a lot of ways, maybe into the beginnings of the bronze age. So you would think, Oh yeah, it's kind of, you know, got that silver age feel and it's sort of fanciful and fantastical and, uh, and goofy and zany. No, this is not that at all. This is a very political book in a, in a lot of ways. So uh, be forewarned if that's not your cup of tea, don't, don't check it out because you probably won't like it. But uh, I do recommend that you check it out, uh, especially if you've lived through, lived through that stuff because there will be a lot there to uh, to think about. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes number six, the final uh, issue of the series from uh, writer Brian Michael Bendis. Art is by Scott Godlewski. Colors by Ryan Cody. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, we found out Vandal Savage was behind everything, manipulation of the great darkness and – uh, in this issue, he talks about how he's going to eliminate the age of heroes. There's never going to be superheroes. And supposedly he thinks the world's going to be a better place for that. Um, I'll get to that in just a second. 
But before I get to that, what I want to just briefly mention is why in God's name is this book called Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes? <laughs> like, they never fought. They never – there wasn't a, even the old trope misunderstanding. There's no There's no reason for this book to be called Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes. I call yeah. fa- false advertising, misrepresentation. Uh, if there's any lawyers out there that want to sue DC, I'll gladly be a witness for yeah. you because well, – Actually, you, you didn't – you don't even need the Legion of Superheroes in this story. I mean, the no. central idea is Vandal Savage wants to eliminate the Age of Heroes, so he could have traveled back in time at any point uh, to essentially have done that. I don't know, you know, but I mean, again, I, I, it just seems. Well, you don't not, need the Justice League either. It could have been yeah, Vandal it, Savage versus Jonah Hex. Jonah yeah, Hex shows up here. It was, in this, it was in this just season. it was six issues of of conversation between two teams that don't know each other very well. Uh, and just talk and talk and talk and talk, and they just happen to travel from different timelines. The Great Darkness isn't much of a Great Darkness at all. It's not even connected to the Dark Crisis. It's not even relevant to the Dark Crisis, not really. Vandal Savage is handily defeated. He's defeated in such a way that's not even explained. It's it, it, His defeat actually takes place off-panel uh, for all intents and purposes. It was just, uh, just an absolutely monumental cop-out, devoid of substance of plot, and essentially, I hate to say it, but is indicative of most of uh, Bendis' entire, entire run at DC, with very few exceptions. Well, I will say there was one thing that came out of it. Apparently, the... Elder Guardians or whatever they're called um, that provided the that provided the Gold Lantern with his gold ring. Yeah. They want to create a Gold Lantern core. Um, so if there's any long lasting um, kind of consequences or anything you need to take away from this series, anything you need to know about this series, that's probably the only thing. Uh, and that's that may not be true. If it comes to pass, it might be important to know, but. If it does come to pass, it will come to pass in another book, and you can just learn about it in that book. So, I don't really have much else to say other than what what Rocky said. He was he said it much harsher than I would have, but I can't I can't necessarily disagree with anything that he said. Um, because again, like what happens in the story doesn't Vandal. I mean, I can sum it up like in a couple sentences, right? Vandal Savage wanted to eliminate the Age of Heroes. He didn't want there to be superheroes in the DC universe. He went back in time and tried to change things to prevent that, and the Justice League and or the Legion of Superheroes found out and stopped him. But it just as easily could have been Jonah Hex. It just as easily could have been a fly landing on his nose at the wrong time to distract him, to prevent him from doing it. Like Everything that happens here is ex deus machina. It's very plot-driven. We got zero character work. The art by Scott Godlewski, probably the best that we've seen in the entire run in this issue and i'll tell you why uh, i've i've talked throughout about the color work not being very strong and feeling very muted for no reason i feel like we got brighter colors in this last issue than we've had in any issue previous and these brighter colors work so much better for godlewski's line work this whole entire series should have been colored in a brighter palette to begin with and you can even see it on the cover if you're watching us on youtube even the covers are muted in terms of color and they should have been brighter and it would have been a more joyful book to read. Even if still nothing happened, it would have been prettier to look at. So anyway, that's more than enough words spent on justice league versus the Legion of superheroes, which again, they never fought. Don't know why it's versus, uh, but anyway, let's move on. Blood syndicate season one, number five from writer, Jeffrey Thorne pencils by Sean Damien Hill inks by Juan Castro 
Colors by Will Quintana with letters by and World Design. What do you think of this? I I enjoyed this. This was the I was really looking forward to this uh, because this was I I anticipated this being the the Blood Syndicate would finally face off against Holocaust. And as it turned out, I was pleasantly surprised. Where this wasn't really about Holocaust versus what we know to be uh, the the forming the formation of the team of the Blood Syndicate, but actually Icon and Rocket end up showing up in this issue, which uh, that's uh, you know one of my favorite series of the it's it is my favorite series from the Milestone line, and I think it's your favorite as well, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, uh, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I was the, the beginning was a little wonky for me. I continue to be put off by the use of. I think it's the Spanish language. They, they, you know, some of the dialogue, the uh, Jeffrey Thorne in an effort to be very realistic with the characters. He has them at times speak, speak Spanish in some of the flashbacks and, and then English. And, and, um, you know, that's fine. I guess I, it, 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 I don't think it serves the narrative to be quite frank. It sort of takes me out of the story and it makes me wonder what they're saying. And, uh, but the context is enough that I don't really need to know what they're saying. But then if I don't need to know what they're saying, well, then I have the dialogue. I don't know. I just, I have mixed feelings about it. But in any event, the, uh, uh, the artist here, Sean, uh, Sean Damien Hill, his art is fantastic. He, he draws such an intimidating Holocaust. Holocaust is one badass mother effer. I mean, this guy is badass and he takes on icon and rocket he easily dispenses with rocket he basically uh rocket comes right at him and holocaust just creates a heat bubble around her sucks sucks up all her oxygen and she's about to suffocate to death icon comes along and then uh, uh holocaust is prepared even for icon himself who is essentially the superman of this uh, milestone universe, this Earth M, and uh, he's he basically makes an uncertain term, saying, "Get the hell off of my island! This is my territory. Get out! Don't come back!" And basically, Rocket has to rescue Icon uh, because uh, Icon is essentially infected with multiple different types of viruses, and every time his body overcomes the virus, there uh, there's a new virus that forms. And while eventually Icon might be able to defeat him. Uh, it's possible that eventually a virus would be found to kill Icon. So, uh, so the battle there, I thought it was. I, I thought Jeffrey Thorne did a good job of sort of choreographing and making it believable in terms of how Holocaust could stand up to Icon and Rocket. Because I was thinking, yeah, right, forget it, Holocaust, you're powerful, you got all these heat powers, but forget it, man, you, you're going to get your ass kicked by Icon and Rocket. No, it may. I believe that Holocaust is a threat to even Icon and Rocket here. Uh, now, that might not be the case the second time they meet, but this is the first time they meet and Holocaust scores the victory. But this ends with Holocaust's victory maybe being a little, you know, him, him expecting that he's won. A little bit premature because this ends with the Blood Syndicate finally forming and coming into their own and are ready to confront Holocaust. And that's going to lead into the, the next issue. This was an action-packed issue. It was, uh, again, um, I'll, I'll credit... I'll put the uh, blame on myself in terms of not quite always getting a handle on the dialogue and the and the and, and maybe the, the the language and the the get you know the I don't know what you call it the gang speech or the gang language and what have you that's on me uh, I, I still through the context and through the art I get a good handle on what's happening here and this is a really this is this has been an enjoyable series I've been we've been reviewing it uh, well obviously we reviewed every issue and it's it 
it's a lot of fun and and the art is just really fantastic. The art here really stood out for me and I hope to see more of the Sean Damien Hill. I'm not I'm not sure if he's done previous issues or if I just forgot the name, but I think he's uh he's someone I I want to see more work from in the big 2. Yeah, I thought the art was fantastic as well. Color work as well cuz it's it's darker, it takes place at night. So there's a good balance there between the flames and the the light. Uh it's just it's great the lighting. There are times when the flames are reflected in Holocaust eyes and they look like they're almost glowing and it's just yeah. fantastic. So much like yourself, I sort of expected this issue to be the, the confrontation between blood syndicate and Holocaust. I'm glad we got this detour and got icon and rocket showing up because it showed um, how formidable Holocaust is. Uh, the other thing that Jeffrey Thorne did fantastically is through flashback, through character moments and through some of the, the dialogue and the references that Holocaust is making. He, he does a fantastic job of making Holocaust a little bit sympathetic. Like you, you sort of understand where Holocaust is, is coming from, you know, previous to this, you're just like, man, Holocaust is such a, a bad guy. You can't wait to see him get his just desserts. You know, you, I can't wait for that cathartic moment where he gets his butt kicked. Um, but here, you know, when he talks about what Dakota Island has gone through and, and, the way they've been uh, persecuted and, and, you know, left behind and taken advantage of, you know, just like persons of color have been in this country throughout. It, it's a reminder that, yeah, this guy, you understand why he's making the decision he's making. Even if um, innocent people are getting hurt, he's just, he, he's kind of reacting to the system in a way with what he believes is the only thing the system understands, right? Like they've been put down through violence and, um, unethical means. And so he's responding with that kind of same response, right? Like we've been treated terribly. We've been taken advantage of. We've been the victims of violence. I now have power. Uh, and if violence is all you guys understand, then that's, you know, that's how I'm going to respond. So I found myself at times kind of going, man, you know, Holocaust has a point here. And I was like, whoa, hold on a second. I want Icon to get up and beat the crap out of this guy, right? Um, so again, kudos to Jeffrey Thorne for giving us a, a little bit of um, relatability, a little bit of insight into the character of Holocaust. And, I still can't wait. I still think he's a scumbag. I still can't wait for him to get his butt kicked. Uh, uh, but it's it, yeah, but it, it's good. It's good character work, hundred yeah. percent. So. I just wanted to give a shout out to colorist Will Quintana because you you did a you you did talked about the the color work and Will Quintana should give her uh, give him a shout out. So good job. Yeah, 100% fantastic color work. Uh, all right, up next we have <coughs> Sandman Universe Nightmare Country number six from writer James Tynan, Simon Bolin on lettering. Maria Lovett is the artist, Rico Murakami uh, on the cover. This feels a little bit like an interlude into the story. Um, and it's sort of, uh, this is a little autobiographical, I think, for James Tynan, even though the, the character here that meets a sad end uh, before the end of this issue, Jamie Tyler, I think his name is, that's clearly a, a play on, um, on James Tynan. And basically in the story, this Jamie Tyler is brought in to, to write the story of, uh, of what has happened uh, to the, the girl that we've, uh, the story that's been, been told so far, right? Madison Flynn, this college student who, was an art student and could see the Corinthian and could see terrible things. And we saw her killed uh, last issue by the two 
psychotic uh, uh, supernatural hitmen. And so in this issue, again, a bit of an interlude, it, it focuses on this Jamie Tyler, who, again, I feel like it's tying and writing himself into the story. Um, and he befriends his neighbor, who's a witch, who sees, uh, can somehow see or sense that, uh, that Tyler has become mixed up in something much bigger than himself. And when she uses her uh, magical abilities to find out what's going on, she sort of draws the attention of uh, of the supernatural forces that have been at work, the same ones that contributed to the death of Madison Tyler. And we're told that her story is going to continue in Dead Boy Detectives number one, uh, which got announced a couple of weeks ago and is going to be coming out. So this almost feels like a backdoor pilot, if you're familiar with that term from television. That's where an established series would have some guest stars come in, like, say, Happy Days. Oh, I'm really dating myself talking about Happy Days. Happy Days had an episode where Laverne and Shirley co-starred, and that was what's called a backdoor pilot to then uh, hopefully get people that were fans of Happy Days and, and watchers of Happy Days to go watch the Laverne and Shirley uh, series when it started. So same thing DC's doing here. They're hoping that people will be interested enough in meeting this uh, this witch to follow her over to um, – to dead boy detectives when it, when it kicks off. Um, so we don't really get much, if any, uh, of the actual story of Madison Flynn or the Corinthian or, uh, or any of that here. So what's going to happen? Like, again, I thought this was, uh, I talked about it before. I thought this was a limited, but now it seems like maybe it's going to continue indefinitely. I don't, I don't really know. I think the Cor- Corinthian shows up for like, two panels, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where the actual story of Madison Flynn being that she's dead uh, or the Corinthian is going to go after, you know, this particular, this, you know, yeah, this particular issue. Uh, we do know that Madison's friend Robbie is still around and met with James. Um, he was, you know, supposed to, he supposedly he's an executive producer. And this whole idea is they're turning this, uh, the story of Madison Flynn into like a movie or a, a TV series. And this Jamie Tyler has been hired to, to write it because obviously it was a big deal when it happened, you know, the, the, uh, the dorm burned down and, you know, people that knew Madison knew she was talking about seeing monsters and blah, blah, blah. So this is a bit of a meta James Tynan taking a, a page out of Grant Morrison's book, animal man, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it was fun, but yeah, it definitely, it, 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 felt like really a a departure from any of the storyline or plot that we've had for nightmare country so far. But uh, anyway, what did you think? Well, first of all, just a little bit of a backstory here. Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with Thessaly because I I read Thessaly, a witch for a hire, a vertigo series, which came in. I I own the whole series came out in 2004. I I had to look that up, but I I do have the back issues. So this uh, Lamia woman, this is Thessaly. This is this is Thessaly, a witch for a hire. That's who the neighbor is that this Jamie's neighbor. Is. I, yeah, I had no idea. I thought yeah. she was a new character. But no, she's she's, she, she's an existing yeah. character, Thessaly, a witch for hire. And what she's a witch that has existed for centuries, and she's always made various bargains with numerous entities, extending her lifespan in exchange for various services, witchcraft services that she's provided. And so it's interesting that she shows up as a neighbor to Jamie. And just a, a little bit of a building up on here, this murder of Madison Flynn 
We have to remember that Madison Flynn, although she's dead, her spirit is actually now working with Corinthian. The Sandman appointed Madison to keep an eye on Corinthian, and it's Madison that is sort of like the conscience of the of the Corinthian now to keep an eye on the Corinthian. So Corinthian can't kill unless Madison Flynn gives the Corinthian permission to do so. So Madison Flynn is now working with the Corinthian. But she's actually dead in, on the mortal plane. So what's interesting here is that now in the mortal plane, somebody, this Jamie guy, is trying. he's trying to uh, apply for a job to write a screenplay, to write the screenplay on Madison Flynn's life and her eventual death. And for some reason, Thessaly, this witch, showing up, that's interesting if you know anything about Thessaly, because Thessaly only throw, sh- shows up when shit's about to hit the fan. <laughs> so if Thessaly shows up, something is wrong, and Thessaly knows something is wrong. She's a, she's a sexy looking librarian looking woman. This issue does have some nudity in it. Uh, and if you, yeah, if you're having astute eyes, you, you may have caught it as I was going through the pictures here. Uh, but in any event, she, she knows that, that Jamie who's investigating this. He's the center point of something. And, and she, she says to Jamie, look, let's have a seance. If you really want to get to know this Madison, have a, ha, you know, let's have a seance and so, or a Ouija board and you can try to ask her questions that way. Jamie knows that sounds crazy, but he figures why not? Plus, Thessaly looks hot. He, she goes by the name of Lamia on this issue. She looks kind of hot. He brings a bottle of wine and this is brought maybe James Tiny and, you know, working through his issues on the comic book page. <laughs> but good for him, you know. But, uh, you know, he maybe could have, I, I don't think, I think I think I think James Tynion is better looking than how he's portrayed in this issue. But you know that's just you know whatever. Uh, but in any event, uh, in in the in the uh, when they go through the Ouija uh, board, he has visions. This Jamie character has visions of Mister Agony and Mister Ecstasy, who actually killed uh, Madison Flynn on the mortal plane, and uh, he ends up uh, being consumed by fire himself now for some reason i'm not sure how what madison's going to do with that she stumbled upon something but it teases that she's going to go off to the dead boy detectives who are two actual literally dead boys they're they're spirits who are sort of detectives in the afterlife and it's going to be very interesting to see where this story goes and if we're going to see the corinthian and madison flynn show up uh, in their, in their, I guess, in their own sort of spiritual Sandman realm moving forward. But uh, I thought this was actually well done. I, I was confused as hell when I, in the first five, six pages of this, I think, what the hell's going on? And then it, it took me a while because her name was, was uh, Lamia, but she looked familiar. And then it's like, she's a witch. Ah, when it says she's from Greece. And I thought, is that Thessaly? And then I had to Google it. Yeah, it is Thessaly. <laughs> anyway, so it's a, a, a credit to uh, the writer here, uh, James Tiny, and he, uh, because I, he, he did not spoon feed the reader on this. He, you know, he's challenging the reader a little bit. He's assuming that the reader, uh, is, is, has some knowledge of the Sandman. So that's for, for good or ilk anyway. Yeah. Which I don't have. So explains why I, I didn't know, but anyway, let's move on. Uh, Tim Drake, Robin, number one from writer, Megan Fitzmartin, Riley Rosmo on the art. Lee Luffridge does colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. What'd you think of this? I, I was, uh, I have to say I was, I was, I was disappointed in this. I really wanted to like this. I really did. Um, uh, first of all, I will, you know, let's talk about the art first and foremost here, because, uh, I actually think that, uh, I want to give some compliments because, you know, look, Riley Rosmo is an acquired taste. 
uh, I know by many, but, uh, you know, we've said that all the time because lots of other people say it. But the reality here is Riley Rosmo continues the detail he puts on every page on the backgrounds here. He really is putting in some extra work. If when you look at his, his early work for DC, uh, compared to what he's doing now, there's, there continues to be marked improvement, but he's got a very stylistic approach, the way he draws faces and they're just unattractive faces. And I, and, uh, and the, uh, but I find that he's getting better on, on the, on his body shapes and his, and his different, uh, and, and, and his different approach to the backgrounds, his colors are the, the coloring always seems to be sort of, sort of mooted for his for his uh, art, which doesn't always serve it very well. But you know, I, I got to say that there is there are details here. He did he drew a, there's a there's a double page spread where he draws the Gotham Marina, and the detail of the buildings, the bats, the boats, and it's a hell of a lot of detail on a double page spread. It's very well done. I mean, I, I want, I do want to give him some credit for that. Uh, so my, my concerns with this issue, the art was fine. I, I have no problem with the art. I, I had, I could easily understand what was going on. Riley Rosmo, he has a style, his style is what it is. But story wise, I just, Megan Fitzmartin, I, she, she references this story. I can't wrap my head around it. Um, I refuse to go back and read the Tide, the, the DC Pride issue, and then there's another Tim something special. Apparently, there was an issue where he's fighting white discs that turn into elephants or access animals. Uh, white, they were fighting a white elephant. Yeah. That, that yeah, they found out that a disc was generate some kind of disc was generating the white elephant or something like that. Yeah, I just I, I don't get it. Like I. I mean, I get there, there's a there's a there's a, a, a sort of a new character called Sparrow. Or she's not really new. She was in the We Are Robin series. Uh, this so he's got a sidekick now. Uh, this this girl who is uh, go, going by the name of Sparrow, and she is always teasing him about whether or not he's going to tell Bernard that he's Robin because his boyfriend Bernard doesn't know that he's Robin, and he doesn't want to tell Bernard he's Robin because it might upset Bernard because Bernard was almost killed in their last adventures in Batman urban legends. Um, I just, what, what disappointed me the most here is what you, what, what this issue needed to be more than anything was a jumping on point because it's an issue one. This is an actual issue one and nobody bought one. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. It's maybe it sold reasonably well, but how many people, read that pride issue are going to jump in to buy this one. Okay. Maybe there's, maybe there's an audience there, but, but to tie to narratively tie this issue in with that was a huge, I think it was a huge mistake because I forget what was, first of all, it's a bad, it's a, just a bad plot. It's dumb. It's just, I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, there's nothing worse than either boring or dumb in a comic book story, like where it's dumb, dumb. And for a comic book story to be dumb, that's saying something. And then boring on top of it. I just, I, I don't even understand. I, I, I don't get what's with the white disc. Uh, and, and, and I don't even understand. And then he's referencing impulse and Superboy, And then Fitzmartin is even referencing the young justice series, which we have, we have talked about before precisely because we don't know what's going on in that series either. Which is a bunch of nonsense because it involves Mix Mixie, the son of Mixia Pedelec, or Mixes. But it's this is just really, really messy to me, and this just plan doesn't work. Uh, 
I am like straight up. I have absolutely no interest in 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 getting to know this Tim Drake at all. This is this looks boring. It's it's I don't know what's going on. Uh, I don't even know what he's doing. He's living on a boat. I I, I just I don't know. Like I'm just. Maybe it's just, it just maybe rubbed me the wrong way, but I'm, I'm just so disappointed that, uh, I can't believe that this is evolving the character forward. This is a guy that was going to go off to college, make something of himself, but now he's, <laughs> now, now he's living off in dilapidated dock with some woman named Sparrow who, uh, and he's, and he's fighting a white disc. Uh, I just, honestly, I, I'm, I'm astonished that, um, man, I mean, I'm not a Trim Drake fan. He's my he's my least favorite Robin. I I liked it better when he was killed off. I'm not gonna lie. So I have that bias. I I, I think he's he's one of those Robins that literally was better off dead. Uh, and I know I'm gonna you know get a lot of you know maybe hate comments for that. But I mean, this this is just a character that <laughs> that just shouldn't exist in my mind. But he does. And hey, whatever. I guess here you go. Here you go. He's fighting white discs. So hooray, hooray. <laughs> but how do you feel about it? Yeah, I liked it. So <laughs> is it perfect? No. Uh, I take a thousand. No, I'll take a million Tim Drakes over Damien any day of the week. I feel like <laughs> Tim is my Robin. Um, but far and away my favorite Robin. Uh, I like Dick Grayson better as Nightwing kind of off on his, on his own. Um, I feel like he really evolved and outgrew the role. And other than that, I don't think we ever need another Robin or needed another Robin other than Tim Drake. Tim Drake was the one that that chose to be Robin. He wasn't recruited by Bruce Wayne. It went the other way. He lobbied to be Robin uh, and was actually uh, capable of the role because he could make the argument, well, Stephanie Brown lobbied to be Robin as well. Yeah, but she got herself killed because she was inept. So to me, Tim Drake embodies the, the best of what it means to be Robin. Now, all that being said, obviously we're going through some big changes for Tim Drake. Now it's like in a lot of ways, DC, it feels like maybe didn't know what to do with them after they brought Damien along, which for fans of Tim Drake, you know, maybe that's why part of why I dislike Damien so much. It feels like Damien's existence displaced him. Um, and I don't feel like that's all of it because I, I feel like part of my dislike of Damien is just, he's a, punk he's not a likable character and obviously that we've had some recent uh, evolution of damien as a character that has sort of mitigated some of that so where does that live leave tim drake well kind of in no man's land who is tim drake and i do find it interesting that dc editorial along with megan fitzmartin who clearly has a huge amount of passion for who tim drake is as a character is sort of embracing that right like not only does dc editorial not know who Tim Drake is. Tim Drake himself doesn't know who, who he is. And there are going to be things that are explored in this series, I think, that will that will kind of make sense. You know, you mentioned uh, about, well, Tim Drake had it all together, right? Like he knew who he was. He, he got good grades in high school and he was this overachiever and he was going to go to college and make something of himself. That's Those were your words. He was going to go to college and make something of himself. What happened? Now he's living on a boat. Well, that's the whole point. That's the, where the relatability yeah. comes in is that there are a lot of people of Tim's generation um, and subsequent generations who uh, 
who haven't made something of themselves, so to speak, right? Like the world has changed. When you go back to that like baby boomer mentality of, oh, I'm going to go to school and pull myself up by my bootstraps and go to college and get a degree and get a job and buy a house and blah, blah, blah. And then like, and they look down on the current generation for not being able to accomplish those things, you know? And then you go back and look, well, how much was your college tuition? Well, it was $5,000 a year. Now college tuition is $85,000 a year, you know? Well, how much did you pay for your house? Well, it was 23,000. Well, now a house is $230,000. Like the world has changed, right? And so like it or not, if you were a fan of Tim Drake back then, he was a product of the 90s in a lot of ways. And that that first Robin series, I mean, Tim Drake was the first Robin to have a regular ongoing series and it went well over 100 issues. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for this character. I don't think he's just a, a throwaway character that shouldn't exist. I think there's a lot there. That being said, th- this is not 1990. Times have changed Tim Drake is still a relative young man, and the argument could be made that DC editorial and Megan Fitzmartin are telling the same types of stories with Tim Drake, coming-of-age type stories with Tim Drake that they told back in the 90s. The difference is the world around Tim Drake, the circumstances have changed. So let's explore that. Let's explore what it means to be a young man in this reality. a young man who's always answered the expectations that have been put on top of him has always identified himself. His self-identity is wrapped up in how others see him, which is the exact opposite of what self-identity should be. You know, if you sat there and asked Tim Drake, well, Tim, who are you? Who are you supposed to be? And you, you know, you're saying I'm reading this and I don't know who Tim Drake is. That's the point. Tim himself doesn't know who he is. He has defined his entire existence by the expectations of others and the the expectations that he has put on himself based on how others perceive him. I'm going to be the overachiever in school. I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to be a great Robin because, you know, then other people will see me as a success. Other people, that's the yardstick that they use to determine who I am as a person. Well, who is Tim Drake to himself? How does he measure happiness for himself? And that's the journey of self-discovery that he's been on. That's all tied in with his sexuality, with DC deciding to make him bisexual and give him a boyfriend, you know, rather than dating Stephanie Brown. Like all that is still to be explored. So this is a, and and I haven't even taught, like that's all kind of below the surface. And we're not even talking about who he is as a superhero because that's the other aspect. And I would say if there's any, anything that I hope improves, improves, I don't want to say improves, but anything that I hope Megan Fitzmartin leans more into as the story goes on is a little more traditional superhero because I get what you're saying about the whole disc and the white elephants. It feels very supernatural sort of thing. I sort of hope that she leans more into kind of the traditional superhero stuff, have them go up against Two-Face, have them go up against Killer Croc, that sort of thing. More more kind of street level Batman villains um, and have him outsmart him because I think that it works better on that level and, w- and will be a little less confusing. Uh, but I'm sure that she has a plan and uh, her passion for Tim Drake and who he is, uh, is, is very self-evident to me. So it, it's really working. Do I wish it was a different artist? Yes. But again, that's just a personal preference because um, I'm such a fan of, again, going back to nostalgia, Tom Lyle, uh, that art, 
for Robin was just that that's how I see Tim Drake yeah, in my head. Tom Grant. Not to say anything bad about Riley Rosmo's, you know, chosen style of art. Uh, it's a very kinetic and fun style and it does suit kind of the useful feel of the story. Um, but it's just, again, it's, it's, that's just a personal thing. I'm just not a, a fan of the particular style, but he definitely a, a good storyteller. Um, and his art has become more refined, even though it still is that identifiable Riley Rosmo, uh, art style. So, uh, all right. One more book to talk about in detail. It's DC versus Vampires, issue number nine, from writers James Tynan and Matthew Rosenberg. Art and colors are by Otto Schmidt, lettered by Tom Napolitano. What did you think of this one? Uh, I enjoyed this. Uh, one of the things about DC versus Vampires is that we we seem to be getting multiple different issues of, of telling, explaining the battle between the, the, the remaining remnants of humanity versus the vampires on multiple fronts. We have DC versus Vampires, All Out Wars. All Out War, which is on, we, we reviewed issue three of that last week. I think there's a bit, there's been a couple of one shots. Uh, we've gotten side stories of Dick Grayson becoming King of the Vampires. And we've gotten, we've got a war on multiple fronts. We know at least from, on one of the one shots that, that Harley Quinn, the blood of Harley Quinn has within it, the, uh, the blood that, that could be, that, that, that could be the antidote that could cure humanity and, and other heroes from the from the vampire plague or whatever you want to call it from the influence of the vampire bite, and we know that uh, Supergirl they're trying to get Supergirl to Australia uh, to in order to get her some sunlight. They're trying to free Weather Wizard so that he can free up the sun to bring the sun out to to because the world is in perpetual darkness, and uh, we got a lot of this stuff coming into play here. And in this issue, we see sort of a battle on three fronts. We see a battle. Green Arrow is in Smallville, uh, in a, in a blood camp in Smallville where he ultimately ends up confronting Hawkman. Uh, and we also see the battle on the Coral Sea near Australia where Black Mantle, Black Mantis steals Supergirl and Jaina, the Wonder Twin, end up battling against, uh, Aquaman, uh, a vampiric, uh, Aquaman and his Atlantean guard. And, uh, we have a, um, I believe there's one more. Yeah, in the outskirts of Gotham City, we have uh, Harley, Black Canary, Frankenstein, and Batgirl trying to find a way into Gotham City that is protected by a vampiric uh, Power Girl and Star Girl, I think, and 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 ultimately they end up meeting up uh, Vampire Damien, who will invite them to try, who will. Uh, try to break them into Gotham City so that Barbara Gordon wants to be the one to take out Dick Grayson as King of the Vampires because uh, that's really the goal. So uh, I really like what what there's the story that's being set up here. There, there's a lot of action here and this is a very fast-paced issue. Tinian and Rosenberg are doing a really good job and I mean just they work well together. The, the art by Otto Schmidt, uh, maybe it's not for everybody but but. I really like it. I, I, I just love the I love the fact that you never know who's going to die here. This is just like uh, this is just like deceased. This is just like injustice. Uh, there, there's no rules here. Heroes can die. Villains can die. There's no guarantee they're going to come back. And uh, this has the illusion of actually there's art. There is consequence. There's no illusion about it. And I just I love the battle sequences here. I love the character work. The dialogue's good. I genuinely don't know who's going to live. 
and who's going to die. Uh, but I do know that I'm really curious to see how are they going to break into Gotham City. This issue is only, I believe it's only like 22 pages long. And it's a little bit frustrating. It's a little bit frustrating because uh, in terms of story-wise, they, it, it sort of gets along, it, it sort of gets along at a snail's pace. But we do get some good, we, we get good interaction between Green Arrow and uh, the Grifter, who is a prisoner in the in the blood camp outside of Smallville. We get some good dialogue between Black Manta and Aquaman. Black Manta is revealed to be Mira because uh, Black Manta was previously killed. So who's under the mask? It ends up being Mira doing battle against uh, uh, Arthur. Uh, there's just some really great action. Uh, Jane, the Wonder Twin, seems to meet her fate. She tries to... Uh, it looks like she's uh, taken off the playing field by Aquaman because she turns into water, but Aquaman can control water. So it looks like maybe Jaina might be dead. We're not sure. We don't know the fate of Supergirl. Supergirl ends up getting pulled under the ocean into the deep blue sea. They're just off the coast of Australia where Supergirl can maybe eventually find sunlight apparently, but she's pulled into the deep dark recesses of the ocean at the end of the battle of uh, against Aquaman. So we don't know what's going to happen there. So, and this is all, so all these, these three different uh, key areas, these three key scenes that are playing out through battle sequences are, uh, are playing out and neither, none of them are concluded. And so, and this is leading into the next issue. And like I say, I'm enjoying this. I'm, this is going to be a good, uh, this is going to be one of those things where, uh, you know, this is where I'm kind of glad. This is where it really helps when when comic books come out on time. We were talking earlier about how maybe the delay of uh, Beyond Batman, White Knight, Batman Beyond, you know, it's always a concern that it, it it disrupts the flow of the narrative. One thing about DC versus Vampires is that if you've been following it, we've got some consistent bang, bang, bang every week. We're getting some DCV vampire stories. And, you know, it's good because I don't, you know, you know, my memory's not all that good, but the fact that we read so many stories and I still kind of remember the bullet points of the stories, that's a good thing because I get it's building, the suspense is building and, uh, you know, it's pretty good. And I have to say, I really like the color. I, I, I like this better than the just black, white and red that we're getting in, in the DCV Vampires All Out War. I like it better with multiple colors here myself. That's just a personal preference. And I, I really like the color work here. You can see that the earth, the background is dark red skies. It's either dark red, dark orange. You can tell it's just a vampiric world. And uh, even the darkness of the depth of the ocean that when Supergirl car is pulled beneath, I think the color work works really well in conjunction with Otto Schmidt's art. And kudos to the... Uh, Kudos to the colorist. Uh, I don't know who does the coloring. Is it Otto, Otto Schmidt? He does his own coloring. Well, he does a good job here. So what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I do sort of wish we've talked about this before. Yeah, we've had various one shots. Now we've got DC All Out War, uh, DC versus Vampires All Out War. I just wish it was all in one volume. Just give it to us in a linear fashion. Because um, I do sort of feel like... Um, some of this, like we've gotten some glimpses of, of other things that have been in, in the, in the future. And it doesn't necessarily make sense. Like, are they going to solve it here? Then how did we get, you know, what happened in the future? Like, uh, yeah, it doesn't make, it doesn't make a hundred, hundred percent sense. Um, but setting that aside, if you just, you know, read this for what it is. Yeah. It's, it is interesting. It is compelling. Um, it's just a strange p- pace that this, 
the argument could be made that things started off really slow and it, it didn't feel like we were going to get to the this point, right, of consequences of the vampire's win. It, it sort of felt like the way it started off was the vampires were going to try to get a foothold and the Justice League was going to stop it. And then it just like things completely went off the rails. And now, you know, this is issue number nine and the the sun is gone. The, the, the <laughs> Most of the heroes are all dead. Like, yeah, this is a story of, of consequence. But yet when you look at the pacing, it is really gotten to a breakneck speed but so much of what happens in the story happens between the issues feels like we have a big time jump between each issue and i just don't know that that's the best way to tell this story um but again it's just an interesting way to tell it i i know they're releasing one shots and other series or whatever to sort of fill in the blanks but i just i really do wish that we just had you know one series that was rolling everything out and was moving along a little slower um, so we could get some of those really cool moments like when um, – like how did Black Manta die? I want to be able to see that. How did Mira decide to become the new Black Manta? You know, I'd be interested in seeing that. I'm glad you mentioned Cole Cash. How did he get captured? Because he's, you know, a pretty uh, formidable guy. So, yeah, I just – it's a credit to, to Tynan and Rosenberg really because I started off not really like, nah, I, I'm reading this because I feel sort of obligated to. And I'm not really invested. Well, now I'm invested. I really want to know what's going to happen. Um, so interesting too, right? Because the other book that you can kind of look at that's sort of similar to this, that's in its own continuity, in its own kind of world, separated from everything else, where anybody could die at any time would be Deceased, right? And right now we have Deceased War of the Undead Gods. In that book... Supergirl is is kind of the big dark side's the big bad, but she's like his his number one lieutenant, right? Like she is completely possessed uh, with the anti life equation and does dark side's bidding and, and is a badass and and really hard to control. You turn around and flip it around on on this, and Supergirl's kind of the last hope of humanity. <laughs> yeah. She's like polar opposites for these two yeah. different worlds, these two different stories. I find that to be interesting. I'm sure it was, it's just a coincidence. But it is kind of interesting. Uh, and I agree with you on the Otto Schmidt art. I've talked before about how this art that we're getting from Otto Schmidt here isn't as clean as the art we got in his Green Arrow run previously. But that is, that's got to be purposeful. This isn't a clean story. This is a rundown world. This is a world, you know, shrouded in darkness, ruled by vampires. It should look sort of, uh, sketchy, if you will. And, uh, seeing the Boana Beast vampire was, uh, was pretty cool as well. So, uh, so that does it for the books that we're going to talk about in detail. There were a couple of other single issues that uh, are coming out this week that we didn't mention. Batman, The Radio Adventures, issue number one, uh, if you're curious about that. And then there's also a Young Justice book, Young Justice Targets, number three, which I don't know how I missed the first two issues of that, but uh didn't read issue three because I haven't read the first two. So uh, look for those if you are so inclined. And then there are a ton of hardcovers. DC versus Vampires Volume 1, hardcover, which collects the first six issues of the mini. Uh, Human Target, Book 1, hardcover, which collects the first six issues of that miniseries. Blue and Gold Trade Paperback, that's the Booster and Blue Beetle story from Dan Jurgens. Uh, Batman Curse of the White Knight Deluxe Edition, that is the second uh, Sean Gordon Murphy miniseries, the first one being Batman White Knight. Uh, the 
that we just talked about, Sean Gordon Murphy verse earlier in this episode. Titans United, which we talked about the new Titans United uh, series last week. The first one is collected. I think it was six issues. That's in trade paperback. Batman Hush, 20th anniversary deluxe edition hardcover is also out. Dead Men Tales the Spooky Tales, trade paperback. Future State Gotham, Volume 2, The Next Joker, trade paperback. Uh, and then a couple of Black Adam books. We have Black Adam, Rise and Fall of an Empire, trade paperback, which collects the uh, the series that came out, uh, spinning out of his appearances in the 52. And then there is uh, Black Adam, Justice Society of America, Black Rain, which collects a story from uh, Jeff Johns' Justice Society of America, issues 56 through 58, crosses over with Hawkman, issues 23, 24, and 25, and then culminates in JSA Black Rain number one. Uh, that's all by, uh, all written by Jeff Johns. Uh, so if you're so inclined, go and check that out. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode. What are you going to give your book of the week to, Rock? Uh, actually, there's no contest this week. This was uh, uh, it's got to go to Tom King and Greg Smallwood. Uh, they're, you know, I I love that it. it's not even on the, uh, uh, yeah, the Human Target issue seven. For sure. What about you? Yeah, I think I think I'm gonna have to agree with you. I mean, there were there were some really great books. I like the end of of Task Force Z. Um, I thought Deathstroke was solid. I thought Sergeant Rock was a good start. Um, I thought Superman Space Age again. If you like that kind of political stuff that that um, Mark Russell does, uh, but yeah, if I just you know think about the book that I had the most fun reading, the book that I enjoyed the most. The art was just gorgeous. Color, you know, uh, character work was fantastic. Yeah, it, like you said, it's no contest. Um, it's Human Target number seven. So, go and check it out. Uh, all right, anything else you want to tease upcoming uh, before we sign off? Uh, well, uh, I know you and I. We've been trying to coordinate your unboxing. You got a bunch of things you want to unbox. Eventually, maybe Definitely. we'll get to that in the next uh, week or so. I I review. Uh, I mean, you and I, we review uh, Scott Snyder's books. We have to, we're behind on that. So we'll, yep. we'll hopefully get to that in the next uh, week or so. I, uh, my collaboration with Jim at Weird Science uh, DC, we, we review indie reviews. We do that every Sunday night. And uh, you can check the channel, my channel out for that. And uh, yeah, beyond that, uh, what about you? We got some, you got some interviews coming up and uh, reviews or what? I- I do. I do have some interviews coming up. Nothing I can talk about right now, uh, but we do have some that should be coming up here in the next few weeks. Uh, yeah, I really, really just hope to, to get caught up on this, uh, the best jacket stuff from Scott Snyder. Yeah, and I really want to get to that unboxing, mostly because I want – you guys don't understand. this. Th- these boxes, like, they stack up like four feet off the ground. <laughs> I just need to unbox that stuff and put it away, so – uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Don't forget, if you're listening to us on audio only, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point to find it, ring the notification bell, leave comments, like and subscribe, you know, uh, all the usual stuff. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to be sure not to miss any of the audio only content, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the comic source uh, and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for joining as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.